If you're in the vape industry and you do not know that the final deeming regulations have reached OIRA, please start selling stand-up scooters. Please do it now. Hey guys, this is Field of Vapor. Hey folks, this is Pete Bissardo. Hey guys, this is Ruby Roo, and you're listening to Smoke Free Radio. edition of Smoke Free Radio right here on the VP Live Network with you every Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern. And of course, all the replays can be found on SoundCloud or iTunes. Search for hashtag Smoke Free Radio. My lovely co-host, M will not be with us tonight. She is battling uh, abscess tooth. She's going to the doctor. Uh, I told her my suggestion was just to drink ouzo and she'll forget about it, uh, among other things in her life. <laughs> but she does have to go to the doctor, but I do have... Somebody to fill in for her. Let me just go ahead and bring him on from now because uh, I like having Jay on. Mr. Umpstop is going to be sitting in for him. Uh, Although uh, he was not prepared and uh, had his radio on. And he doesn't look as good as uh, Meg, obviously. What's up, Jay? A face made for radio. How's it going, (laughs) dude? There's no doubt about that. Uh, I'm doing well. I've been I've been uh, obviously uh, very occupied the last 24 to 48 hours with the with the FDA regulations uh, reaching OIRA. And uh, the first thing that I have to say is just don't fucking panic. I mean, we were expecting this, and as Jeff Steyer said on the on the broadcast a couple of weeks ago, um, <clears throat> finally, at least we we will find out soon what we have to deal with. And um, 
and I do have it kind of planned out later on uh, when I get started talking on this topic. I want to kind of lay it out uh, in easy terms for people to understand how we got to this point. And I'm going to have a guest come on a little bit later on that has dealt with uh, the OIRA process from the first set of regulations that came through. And just kind of tell us what's going to happen now and what to expect. Other than that, how are you? How are things going? I'm good. I'm good. You know, some ups, some downs. Uh, but it's been good. You know, it was very disappointing uh, that you weren't at VaporCon this year. I was very disappointed as well. I got four trips booked in October, and I got to spend some time with the kids. You know, uh, it's it's uh, traveling is just uh, just unreal for me. I miss VaporCon. One of one of the great shows. In fact, this past weekend I was in Orlando at the vaping convention, um, and it was it was kind of like VaporCon. It was in a hotel, uh, small amount of vendors. I think it was like forty vendors, and I had a great time. I could actually socialize, sit down, talk to people, hug people. Uh, it was, you know, it wasn't crazy like these big expos, and I really enjoyed it. And I do miss VaporCon, so hopefully, maybe I'll make this summer uh, VaporCon West or, or or Vape Bash or one of those events. But uh, I heard you had a great time. Yeah, we did. We did. I mean, uh, VaporCon has always, you know, stayed true to their roots, which, you know, it, it's a community-based uh, event as opposed to, you know, more of a sales and marketing-based event, which we've been seeing more and more of over the years. So, you know, it's it's definitely great to, you know, get in touch with some old friends, you know, some of what we call the veteran vapors. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's just a great event. Lou Lou does an excellent job on this thing. It is, it is, and I do I do miss uh, those simple days. I, I really yeah. do. I mean, things were so much easier um, when we started vaping. Not from the ease of use of products. Don't get me wrong. Even though that fiddliness was uh, a little bit romantic. I mean, I think it kind of kept everybody going and and give us a reason to try to fine-tune our vape to stay off cigarettes and that had a lot to do with my my journey but but mostly the friendships that we created that were online and we only got to see people once a year now you know we get to see people every week a lot of the people that we've developed the relationship with uh, but you know having that that long time apart and speaking online and then finally getting to be in a room with everybody and hang out have a few drinks and a great vape it's uh, it's priceless Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, programming note, next week I will not be here. I will be in Washington, D.C. I will be attending uh, TMA Standards Conference, which I am extremely um, excited and fearful to attend because I heard that there's some, there's some, uh, there's some stuff there that I, might, might not make me happy or the open vapor space, but it's an important meeting, and I will be attending representing my company, uh, the company that I work for. And uh, so I will not be here next Wednesday night. And this weekend... I think I got this guy on the phone. Let me bring him, bring him in. This weekend, I will be at the American Vaping Convention in Irving, Texas. Really excited about that. 949, who is this? Hello? Austin, can you hear me? Hey, buddy, I'm here. Hey, the face of vape, Austin Hopper. What's up, Austin? Hi, Dimitri. Thanks for having me on. How are you? Uh, I am doing well. I wanted you to come on briefly. Uh, people that know, don't know Austin Hopper, formerly the president of Cutwood and now president of Revol Vapors, uh, and uh, dubbed lately the face of vape, although I must say that my face is a little bit prettier than yours. Um, Austin, you've dealt with these. these I, would, I don't disagree. <laughs> uh, you're too kind. Uh, you've dealt with these events over the past three or four years. Uh, I mean, I've probably seen you in every major expo that's been out there the last two three years. <clears throat> And you know what started off as a, as a as a fun good time a few years ago has really really gotten out of hand. And and I think you agreed to me. I mean, you had a little bit of part to, to play in that, as we did, we all did. I think we all kind of fell into this marketing thing. And 
clearly it's kind of gotten out of control. I mean, you have to agree with the last two or three events that you've attended. Well, I don't necessarily disagree with you at all with that. I think it's great. Like you said earlier, it's nice to be able to go out and see everybody. And Yeah, you know, one time, you know, we saw each other twice a year, and now we see each other twice a month. And I think, yeah, it's certainly gotten out of hand. There's no question about that. That's one of the few differences that you'll see at the ABC uh, this year. We're going to have a huge focus on advocacy, as you well know, uh, which is why I'm excited you're going to be there. Greg Conley and Shell from Safas, Texas, and, you know, the vaping militia. Just that people are coming out, and I want to make sure that's the focus because I don't want to lose the war like we're doing in California, and I need help, but I'm not afraid to ask for it. I, I will tell you that I have been very, very selective uh, with attending vape meets, and I will have a huge rant about that at the end of the show, and I don't want to get into it now because my blood pressure is doing very well. But I will tell you that uh, one of the reasons that I did agree to to come to this event is because you are you, you we're going to be raising a good chunk of money for the association there in Texas that's going to go directly to pay the lobbyists um, which is much needed in Texas. I mean, SB 97 in the past this year, I'm not saying it's a bad bill. It's not a great bill. The comptroller is causing all kinds of issues with vendors there. You know that you have affiliation with, with Artisan Vapor, and Eric Peterson that was from here at Tennessee just moved now is telling me that he has to deal with. It's extremely important if these events are going to have a fundraiser to keep the money in the freaking state. I'm not saying don't give to the AVA. I'm not saying don't give to the CASA. But if you're going to raise money in a state where you're going to have an expo, look at the local association, in this particular case, the association that Shell is leading, which she's done a good job. And she's having a hard time with so many major, major vendors in Texas to raise money for the lobbyists. And that's why I agreed to come. And, I, and for that, I have to thank you because you stepped up first with a big check. Well, you know, I have a responsibility to the industry just like you do. Um, you've been out there in California uh, probably most of your vaping journey, and you've seen how, how difficult things uh, can get with legislation and where the direction of, of vaping is going. What is uh, Aside from the advocacy, what is the one thing that you want? This is the first time that very American Vaping Convention is having an event. What is the, the one, aside from the advocacy, which we're going to focus a lot on hope on this, uh, what is the other thing that you want people to know about the American Vaping Why should people come out there? Well, I think if you look at the vape community, what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring back the community to vaping like you gentlemen talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're looking for. We want responsible vapors that are going to come out, not just on a consumer standpoint, but also on a business standpoint. The people that are looking for the long-term reasons to be here. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that we're doing a vaping convention for the right reasons. That we're educating the community, that we're talking about battery safety. Because things are happening all the time, not just because of... um, regulation that's coming, whether that's from the FDA or now it looks like the FCC is trying to step in. There's a lot of unknowns, and I think there's a lot of fear. And when people don't know what to do, they don't do anything at all. So I think it just becomes an education standpoint. And the same thing goes with bottles and advertising and doing all of those things. It's not just from an advocacy standpoint, because, yeah, we all need to play our part in that, but we also need to represent the community well also. I think that's extremely important, something that we've been fighting a lot about. And I know from one standpoint, it's difficult for, for an organizer to turn down money uh, by some questionable, if you want to call them that for lack of better term, uh, labeling, uh, you know, uh, handling of bottles or mixing within the event and so forth and so forth. Has steps been taken through the ABC to, to combat that? Uh, we've had no issue turning down the money because this isn't a money-raising event. This is an awareness event, and it's about education, and it's about rewarding those companies like Beard Co., for instance, 
mm-hmm. that do it the right way. Mm-hmm. Right? It's about to get finding those companies. You know, Bill and Vapors is the presenting sponsor. It's mm-hmm. about finding out people that want to do the right thing, that are willing to come in and understand that, you know, during business to business, we're going to close down during hours so that when we have business owners there, they actually get to hear the advocacy portion yeah. that we're going to shut down business during that time. And 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 one of the things that that the, the organizers uh, have 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 spoken about is we really need to focus on the law of the particular state. It's going to have a lot of vape shop owners that are going to be walking the event. So when you're having an event in a state, I think you know. Let's look at the FDA. Let's look at the FTC, which I'm going to talk about later. But let's look at the local law itself. How many v- vendors? Just now, I got a message on Facebook from a Texas vendor that didn't know that they have to check the ID when they're shipping out of state. To me, you know, I, I mean, how can you be a vendor and not know that SB 97 passed in Texas? It just it just fucking blows my mind, Austin. It really does. That and here's a great opportunity through the ABC that's going to have a lot of vape shops walking around to focus on the law that's in Texas, which is. First of all, it's not understandable by the by the by, by the uh, controller and, and the people that are have enfor- enfor- they can't enforce this law, which is really stupid. But even the vape shop owners don't understand that there is might not know there's a law or how to enforce it as well too. So that's something that we're really going to focus on. Well, I think that sh- shame on vape shops that aren't getting involved, that aren't getting involved in the yes. organizations that are trying to help. Yes, because clearly that's what you do, Demi, which is why I have so much respect for you. It's because you come out, no matter where you are, you try and get involved and you try to do the right thing. And I think that, you know, we need to quit waiting for somebody else to do it. Because as we both know, there's 6.2% of the people in the vape industry that are actually say they're involved. And about we know that about 3.5% of them actually show up to do anything. Well, I look forward to seeing yeah, you this same weekend. Thing with the job. Thank you very much. Thank you for the compliment too. That's really nice of you. Uh, uh, I look forward to seeing you this weekend. I know you're driving. I want you to drive safe and get there safe. And we'll have drinks this weekend, buddy. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for having me on. See you, John. Have a great night. There Bye, he goes, everybody. The face of vape. By the way, Jake, uh, according to some people, I mean, Jake, Jay, uh, Jake something saying something about it. According to some people, uh, I don't try to help. I just try to go there and cause chaos, right? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> you are the Greek devil. I am the Greek devil. Uh, there's no de- Did you know that Reval, uh spelled backwards means lover? Did you know that? Oh, don't tempt me. <laughs> you can go a little bit off the deep end there. Don't worry about it. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've, you know, I, I've seen some of these vendors, Jay. And correct me if I'm wrong. I uh, usually I'm not. Um, I've seen some of these vendors take some of this seriously. I understand this is a baby industry, okay? And 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 some got into it at a young age, or some got into it and really did not understand the concept of legislation and FDA rule. I've seen some vendors grow. Will you agree with that? I mean, you've seen some vendors that are trying to do the right thing. Not, and, and it doesn't have to necessarily be now. They might have started a year or two years ago, but they're trying to evolve their business, and they're trying to help, and they're trying to comply as best as we can based on the information that we have. Absolutely. And, and I think some of that is because, you know, of the huge uh, profit margins that are to be had. Sometimes they don't know what to do with their money. So they think, oh, OK, advocacy. So it, it makes it easy. Um, but at the same time, you know, the other side of the coin is that you have some vendors that right out of the gate say they want to do the right thing. And when it actually comes down to writing a check or, or you know, having good standards within their shops, they drop the ball. Yeah. So it runs the whole gamut. Uh, there was a question in the in the chat. I want to know who the vendors are who are not funding this fight. Well, I, I mean, I can't sit there and call every vendor out. I'm just going to tell you this. In the state of Texas, uh, I think the count for the association was 97 shops. 
I know there's 97 shops in one fucking county, all right? So mm-hmm. in the state of Texas, last year, the lobbyist bill was paid by 97 shops. So who those shops are? Go find the association and who, see who's a member. Go support them. You'll be surprised to see some very, very large companies. Again, I can't call them all out. I mean, you're, not, you're not dumb. Uh, very, very large companies in Texas that are spending multi-million dollars on uh, marketing and shows not be involved in funding the n- most important thing in their state, which is paying a lobbyist. Um, 97 shops in Texas is unacceptable when here in Tennessee we have 74 shops in an association that has 300 shops in the state. I don't know how many – do you know how many st- uh, shops are in Texas, Jay? <laughs> oh, hundreds. Uh, it's got to be at least 1,000 shops. Yes, I would agree with okay? that. Okay. Um, so when you have te- less than 10 percent, less than 10 percent, uh, funding the fight for the entire other 90 percent, well, you know, that's this is what you're going to get. And now we have to go and try to raise money through this event to keep this lobbyist funded year round. I don't mind doing it. I really don't. If you invite me and you have a true advocacy cause and, and I can help you raise money for your association, it doesn't have to be my association, it can be any association. I'd be more than happy to come. And, and, and Texas is, is a special case, too. I mean, you should be able to fund a lobbyist with pocket change yes. in Texas because of the sheer number of, of vendors. Yes. Uh, the, the fact that you even have to have a fundraiser is, okay. is a testament to how far behind the eight ball we are. It was funny down in Orlando. Boy, I'm veering off subject a lot tonight, but I got a lot of stuff to talk about. Down in Orlando... We were at the Tiki Bar Friday night, and this guy—I um, don't even remember the name, the name of the company—but this guy came up to me and he and he said, uh, "Oh, you need to buy my juice." <laughs> and I said, uh, "No, I do not." <laughs> and he said, uh, "He said, you know, we're having a few drinks, and you know, you're not going to come to me now with with right. standards. I mean, to me, you know." <laughs> so I asked him. I said, "Do you third party test your e-liquid?" And he says, "Yeah, man, we have a HEPA filter." And I was like. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? What the fuck? What? What did you say? Uh, oh yeah, we got a HEPA filter and we got a lead chemist and the and uh, and I just completely berated him. I felt really bad afterwards, but I mean, it, uh, you know, I, was, I have to grab that audio because that I is wish, hilarious. I wish somebody was sitting with a camera behind and and, and uh, but I do have witnesses. I had witnesses there, uh, but, but it was yeah, man. We have a HEPA. We filter. got a HEPA filter, bro. Come on. Somebody should hashtag that and make a meme out of it. Oh, that's huge. That is huge. <laughs> kind of remind me of VW testing for emissions. Oh, but I mean, uh, but um, <laughs> seriously, I, I, just the, the, the level of complacency. People just sit back and expect somebody else to to um, to solve everything for them. And that's not going to be the case. Come on, guys. The shit's already at Oriara. The, the end is near. Uh, by the way, when we were, when we were trying to, when, when he was continuing trying to debate me on this and he was losing miserably, he said, you know, right now we still have uh, time, so we're focusing on branding. Mm-hmm. We're not really focusing on the manufacturing, right? No, so no, said, God forbid. That's exactly what he said, too. And I said, let me ask you a question, my friend. There's a docket right now on the FDA for e-liquid manufacturing and labeling. What if they pass a law tomorrow? What if they pass a, um, a law, a ruling? What if they put a, a you know a rule out the FDA that all e-liquid labels uh, have to be black and white? I was I was just gonna say. <laughs> what are you gonna do with your branding? You're gonna shove it right up your ass. That's exactly what you're gonna do with your branding. You're spending your money on your branding for what? For uh, for expiration date like milk? And and you honestly think that your branding is going to somehow separate you from every. <laughs> 
you know, the, the 6,000 other no brands out there that no are doubt. focusing on their branding? No doubt. But nobody can compete with uh, Hingham Hill. That's, uh, <laughs> That's right, because our branding sucks. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. It's all about that. I see you move. I see you going into some stores. I like that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's moving slowly but surely. It, it, you know, the the funny thing is, is in this region, it's hard to find like made like minded shop owners. That's that's the issue that I've been running into. Everybody wants to cater to a certain type of vapor, and I would rather, you know, broaden everybody's horizons and focus on smokers and trying to convert smokers and maintain sm uh, former smokers' interest in vaping. Yeah. That's that's not how it is up here. Let me cut down your mic a little bit because I was informed by my audio technician that you're a little bit hot. Okay, I oh. fixed it. No, you're good. You're good. You're good. So, okay. um, uh, all right. Let's let me just dive into it. I've got a couple of topics, and then we're going to get into this FDA thing. I will have a guest uh, hopefully coming on here in about half an hour. Uh, they're actually traveling, so I really appreciate them taking time to do that. Um, obviously, the big news: uh, FDA submits uh, the ruling into IRA. Uh, but at the same time, we forgot uh, another thing that's happening. See, this is the problem that we have. When something like this happens, we take our attention off other serious matters in the industry, whether that's state, local, or city legislation, or even the FTC. On Monday, the FTC announced a plan to begin studying how vapor products are sold. I'm sure you've heard about this, uh, Jay. And the study, uh, the, the, the agency would issue information request to e-cigarette marketers and would use the information as a basis for a report on the sales, marketing activities, and expenditures in this new and complex industry. A few of the topics that they're trying to, to seek comment on, the need for study and the practical utility of the information collected, the accuracy of the commission's burden estimates and ways to enhance the quality and utility of the information collected, and to minimize the burden of that collection. What does that mean? Hello. Uh, whether the FTC should seek to collect data according to the various types of products sold and given away by industry. Thank God I will never be hit by another glass bottle on the head. Uh, the various flavors and nicotine strengths of those sales and giveaways, the various sizes and liquid capacities of disposable e-cigarettes, cartridges, and e-liquids sold and given away, and whether the company sells directly to consumers or to wholesale and distributors. Uh, another bulletin point, whether industry members can provide data that distinguishes between, among other things, direct sales to consumers, for example, online sales, and sales to retailers and distributors. Uh, trying to create a path of distribution here, by the way. Sales and giveaways of disposable e-cigarettes and sales and giveaways of refillable e-cigarettes, the various combinations of sizes, flavors, and nicotine contents, good luck with that, of their e-cigarettes and refill cartridges and liquids. And finally, whether the FTC should set data on state-by-state -state sale of e-cigarettes and related products. Uh, this is extremely important, Jay. Breathe. Breathe. <laughs> I got a lot to get in. I got a lot to get in. Yeah, so I, most of what I hear there is uh, the the underlying uh, sentiment. I think is they want to consolidate the industry to make it more easy to regulate. Thank you very much. That's exactly what they want to do. And this is just, if not just as important as the FDA. Well, I don't think it's gonna, it's going to be that as the FDA uh, considering the pre market application. But I think that this this basically takes the industry and puts it under a microscope, right? And, and the data that they're going to collect and the, and the rulings that they're going to come out seriously will affect the way that the product is marketed. Uh, hello, Mr. Branding Guy. Uh, the, the, you know, how samples are given out, if stores can give out samples, if you can test the product. All these are reasons why this product works. And if all these are removed, right? I mean, imagine having a vape shop where you walk in and you're not allowed to sample the product. We're, we're looking at that. You know, we're staring that right down the throat in Massachusetts Absolutely right now. Absolutely you are. Absolutely, you are. By the way, how many members have you got in the association right now? Oh, Demetra is probably better to ask. She's in the room right now. But I would 
I would guess uh, fully paid members right now, probably 15 to 20. 15 to 20 in the state. Well, considering your state, there's not a lot of vendors. Uh, yeah, we probably, I think bad. we have about 75 vendors right yeah, now with yeah. new ones popping up every week. Yeah, yeah. Not, not, not bad. Not bad. Uh, but it, you just, you know, just now launch. You got to give it a year uh, and, uh, and see how it's going to come on. Uh, but, you know, my goal here with the FTC was to say that, hey, listen, let's not all focus on these deeming regulations, which, by the way, we don't know what they are. We haven't seen them. Uh, let's focus on some other issues that are around it. The FTC is an extremely important issue, and it might define the industry. It might thin out the industry to the level where we're not going to need the FDA regulations. That's basically what I'm saying. So pay attention to that. Uh, another, Some other good news uh, this week. Um, last week on this show, we talked about Meg uh, Billion Lives and the, um, the censorship that they got on, on Facebook. Uh, finally, Facebook uh, reversed its decision to censor ads for the upcoming documentary, uh, and uh, basically uh, a victory for electronic cigarettes after the film's director uh, wrote a letter of protest. Facebook initially rejected advertisements for the film A Billion Lives on the grounds it violated guidelines prohibiting ads related to e-cigarettes. The title is based on the World Health Organization's estimate one billion people will die from smoking over the course of the century. The decision was final and could not respond to additional requires about this, but Biebert posted uh, uh, the decision in a letter uh, addressed to Mark Zerberg and the Facebook team that informed them the film's content and purpose. And finally, Facebook reversed, and now a billion lives can advertise on Facebook. So a small victory. I would say it's a huge victory. Um, the fact that they were going to be limited to traditional um, uh, marketing mm-hmm. uh, would have been devastating to this film. Uh, and the fact that that they got the reversal and now they're going to have free reign to advertise on Facebook yeah. is huge uh, because yeah, yeah. their whole goal is not to target uh, vapors. It's to target smokers and the general public. And if Facebook was going to squash that, this film would have gone nowhere. And, and, and I think uh, aside from the victory, it just shows that the public support, the outcry – Twitter, Facebook messages, I think it all played a part to have this this um, this reversed. And I think it would have been a bad PR move on Facebook not to do it. I mean, I, I kind of wish it didn't happen this quickly because <laughs> it might have given <laughs> us a little bit more publicity. You know what I'm saying? Maybe, I mean, maybe. How, maybe. Oh, you know, it could have gotten a, a little bit more traction on mainstream media. And then maybe it was reversed so, to bring a little bit more attention to electronic cigarettes and the user database, which we're lacking on, um, right. which is my next topic because – there's a big Twitter battle going on lately. Uh, we're seeing all these estimates from the CDC. We're seeing all these statements by by the people that are in charge of the CDC that are very, very disheartening. Uh, saying, uh, here's a quote from Dr. Tom Frieden. Uh, um, switching Fried- to e-cigarettes, Frieden, switching to e-cigarettes may be less harmful for adults who smoke, but only if they quit smoking completely. Most do not. This is Dr. Tom Frieden talking, you know, from the CDC uh, saying, and as we've seen a lot on Twitter this past week, that people don't quit quit with e-cigs. But the problem, Jay, and here's the question that I pose to you. The question is, how are they going to get data? I mean, we've already, I I tweeted this this week. How are you going to compile data if I quit smoking and I don't call the quit line? That means that e-cigs work for me. So how are you going to get data on it? Right. It, well, it, it's it's the same sort of statistic as when people call uh, the poison control center asking a question about liquid nicotine. You know, they automatically add that to the um, sure. to the statistics of overdose. Sure, sure. 
you know, it's the same type of situation. We we have a big big problem uh, today. Gregory Conley uh, was attending the FDLI and he was posting these these slides. Uh, we have a bad problem with people not understanding that. If, I mean, I wish I had a number, Jay. This is another issue that I struggle with. Give me a number of of uh, of full time vape users in the United States. Ugh. That's, exactly, I know, that's my I response know. exactly every time somebody asks me that. Too. I know at least four dozen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, too. No. In your neighborhood. Right, right. <laughs> so, I mean, I wish that's a number That's a number that I would really I would really like to have a number like that. How many people are full-time? How many people are, are dual-use? Because we beat on dual-use a lot, but the truth is if you reduce your consumption of cigarettes from 20 to 5, I mean, that's tobacco home reduction. That is the it's, concept. It's of a net gain. It's a net gain, and that should be counted for something. With the Eurobarometers that we saw in the EU, we get a clearer picture, and Dr. F is publishing a study on this, which is a really fascinating study to see uh, the, the the amount of tobacco harm reduction, uh, the, the percentage, is huge. So here we are in the United States, and, and we have these people that are posting these slides, and the opposition that has done a great job in fear-mongering, even people that use the product to believe that e-cigs are just as harmful as traditional tobacco. Yeah. And that's going to... I mean, it does a lot of bad things. The bad thing is this: when this data is used in legislation, in state legislation, like it was used in Indiana. But even worse than that, and and I don't know if your mind can go where my my perverted mind go, my my perverse mind goes sometimes. But we're they're slowing down our momentum. They're slowing down people from trying the product and coming to the other side. Something that we critically need now. Uh, in fact, my Facebook status the other day said, "Well, we're talking about uh, Oira, but." Our goal should be right now to get smokers to switch. Right. And unfortunately, that's not where our marketing and sales activities are going yeah. as an industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we are catering to vapors. We're not catering to smokers. Absolutely. Me and Jay, by the way, the only two mouth lungers left in the planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me and you and, I, again, probably four or five dozen other people. Uh, but uh, looking at, uh, at Gregory Conley's uh, tweet feed today and some of the stuff that, they, that he tweeted out there was, was really alarming. Uh, the surveys of the people that they're taking, they never survey people like us that are full-time users that have quit five years smoking with this product. They only take this short-term answer in the last 30 days, and they take that data and they turn it around to – um, to benefit themselves. In fact, uh, I think Glance it was the one that said this past week that the pathway path study results will not be publicly released, or they're not going to be released now. They might be released at some point. So, what if they, you know, handpick this data from the from the various uh, universities? That University of Oregon put out uh, a, a statement, uh, a, a, a testing that they did on e-liquid. Let me see if I, I have so many windows open. It's just uh, just ridiculous. But here is the. Um, Here's the title. This was in the journal Sentinel. Uh, this is the title of the uh, of the article, Jay. Other harmful chemicals found in smoke juice. I mean, come on. Can it get any worse than that? Wow. I mean, I mean. <laughs> it's, it's like it's like we're vaping liquid smoke. Yeah, I don't even. I mean, I don't even want to go through this. But the, this, this was conducted at Portland State University in Oregon, which, by the way, is part of a past study that's being done by the FDA, which means we're fucked. Uh, and I, yeah, I go in and put in the first thirty-four minutes there. Um, but they said they found, uh, you know, diacetyl, uh, AP. They found senaldehyde, um, acetonin, benzaldehyde, butyric. I can't even say something. Butyric acid, furfural. What the hell is furfural? Do you know what that is? Um, and <laughs> valera. That sounds like a, a herpes pill. Valeral, valeralhyde. Whatever. 
anyway. How would you know that? <laughs> uh, I do a lot of research, sir. You, you know what's funny is the diacetyl and the AP angle, they wouldn't even know about it right. if it wasn't for the proactive mm. uh, nature of our community. They wouldn't even know about it. They wouldn't know right. to go there. You're absolutely right. In fact, Dr. F uh, debunked uh, one of these uh, reports that came out that said uh, an ESIG user um, uh, got popcorn lung from vaping, and uh, the actual publishing article changed the title now, and they said that they made an error, uh, which basically means that they don't give a shit about anything that they publish. They'll just publish it as long as you pay them, and then they'll go back and they're going to make an amendment. How many? Uh, they'll, right yeah, they'll, they'll publish it on page one and <laughs> retract it on page four. But this entire article, if I if I was not uh, if I was not a vapor and I was a smoker. Or if I was, if I didn't smoke or vape, if I read this article here, I'd be like, "Oh shit, that right. sounds worse than cigarettes." And it really does. I mean, the way that the that they they're talking about concentrations, flavor chemicals, the fluids are sufficiently high for inhalation exposure by vaping to be of toxicological concern. And believe me, the the psychology of it. If you're a smoker and you hear even a whiff of something like that, right. you're going to be itching to tell an e-cig user that, "Oh, that's worse than smoking." You know what I mean? This is a re really, really bad article, and uh, I didn't post it on my Facebook, trying not to share a lot of negative stuff, but I put it here in the chat for you guys to to read uh, at, at a later time. Uh, all right, uh, I, I've got to talk about this briefly. Uh, here's another great headline. Uh, this was in uh, published in one of these um, Inquirer-type uh, uh, magazines in the UK. Uh, Vaping apparently burned a hole in this man's lung. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Courtney is a 33-year-old man trying to kick the habit of smoking, but when he turned to e-cigarettes, he ended up getting a nasty surprise. Hmm. The 100-pound device is meant to turn the nicotine fluid into water vapor, but instead it spat. <laughs> I'm reading this, by the way, off the website, and I, it's so funny I can't even finish it. But instead it spat hot nicotine into his throat. <laughs> <laughs> so it burned a hole in his lung. Bukaki. As a result, he claims it burnt through his left lung. Oh my god! So I don't know. I mean, let me see what Bill Nye, the uh, the science guy. That just makes no fucking sense. I mean, it's just bullshit. Fuck. Oh my. Oh my. Let me see what Russ has to say about that. Bullshit. Yep. <laughs> let me see what Stanley has to say about that. Demetrius Agarfoa. <laughs> It's just absolutely horseshit, and and you know, it, it, I mean, look, we know the ambulance chasers are out there. This is a PSA: if you're a vendor, you better have your product liability shit paid off. We are seeing lately. I'm not going to tell what company this is, but we're seeing lately not only the ambulance chasers, but users themselves that see these stories and say, "Hmm, mm -hmm. there's a way for me to make money." They're sending emails to companies. I saw the email myself, uh, Jay. Somebody sent an email to a company that says, a couple of weeks ago, I bought a vision spinner uh, at your store, and everything was doing great. And uh, until a couple of nights ago, where I plugged it in to charge it, and uh, I went to bed, and it blew up and almost caught my house on fire. <laughs> uh, I don't want, don't want to take this publicly and ruin your business. So what are you going to do about it? I mean, this is the state we're at right now. Guys, get your insurance paid up if you're a vape store because you're going to see a lot, whole lot more. And uh, there's another vaping uh, a lawyer firm out there. Not a vaping lawyer firm, but a lawyer firm that's soliciting for, for – um, I'm not even going to give him a plug, but 
soliciting uh, ESIG users to come forth with with stories uh, how they you know got hurt by vapor products and stuff like that. And I'm like, what the fuck? How can you can you even burn a lung? I mean, <laughs> not can, like that. No, can you burn a hole through your lung? <laughs> not directly. Unless, no. unless you put the e-cig up the wrong end, I can't see how that's. Uh... If you inhale some charcoal, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't. Make any sense. Uh, you know, a, a lot of this has to do with uh, you know just the the the, the, God, the fear mongering, the propaganda that's going on by all these groups. You have the media. You have American Lung Association, American Cancer Association, uh, ambulance chasers, uh, CDC. Uh, all these pharma funded, big tobacco funded bullshitters that they're doing a good job. I have to. I got to admit. I mean, you got to give them props, Jay. Right? They've had a lot of practice. They have had a lot of practice. They have a lot of money, and boy, they're being very, very successful. Uh, I want to play here a little clip from uh, one of my top five idols. He's on my top five list, Dr. Gilbert Ross from the American Council on Science and Health. Um, and he brings up a really interesting point, and, and I'll have this in the replay as well, too, for you guys to use if you want to use it in an advocacy uh, session like I'm doing here uh, during Smoke Free Radio. But here he is talking about uh, lobbying and why these groups do not want uh, electronic cigarettes to, to be around. Uh the uh, the politicians that are trying to take e-cigarettes away from smokers are trying to tax them to make them equil- equi- equivalent to cigarettes. That's the the lower price of, of e-cigarettes and vapor products is one of the major factors driving smokers to being uh, having more access to e-cigarettes. They're saying that we should tax and uh, deem e-cigarettes and vapor products as though they were cigarettes. They're changing the definitions of smoke and tobacco. Electronic nicotine delivery products such as e-cigarettes and vapor products emit no smoke and they have no tobacco. And yet the politicians are trying to say that that they should be uh, uh, taxed and and deemed the same as regular uh, cigarettes. The fact is that none of these people have an answer to this problem. We have 43 million addicted adult smokers in this country. And the FDA-approved products work maybe one time out of ten. If that was a pharmaceutical product that was going through testing, they would never pass muster. But yet, all of the politicians and the nonprofits are telling people to stick with the FDA-approved products. But they don't work. Why is the American Lung Association, American Cancer Society, the University of California, San Francisco, and all the academics saying, stick with the FDA-approved products. Don't even try e-cigarettes because we just don't know what's in them. Well, we do know what's in them. It's not just water vapor. I'll have to take issue with you on that. It has propylene glycol or glycerol, a little bit of nicotine, and trace levels of other chemicals that cannot barely be detected. So these groups are actually heavily funded by the pharmaceutical industry that is selling these useless nicotine replacement products, the patches, the gums the drugs that are actually toxic and don't work. They're saying don't try e-cigarettes and yet they will never disclose the fact that they're getting millions of dollars from GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson and other companies that make nicotine replacement products. So that's one area of conflict. The politicians want to tax e-cigarettes so they can prop up their their budgets on the backs of sick and dead smokers. They're trying to take e-cigarettes away from smokers who desperately need them. And as that gentleman said, they're killing small businesses. The politicians are saying this is some kind of ploy by, uh, by big tobacco 
to entice our youth back to nicotine and into cigarettes. The CDC's own data, and the CDC is one of the biggest fonts of mythology and hypocrisy about this subject. Uh, the CDC's own statistics say that kids, while e-cigarette experimentation is rising as more e-cigarettes are in the community, cigarette smoking among teens and young people is going down at levels not seen before. Do you think there's a relationship there? It's quite possible that e-cigarettes are a gateway. They're a gateway out of smoking. Amen. Smoking is the problem. Preach on. Not you. vaping. Cigarette smoking is what kills you. How many people have died or have died in the past year in America from cigarettes? Maybe half a million. How many have been sickened or, or killed by e-cigarettes? Then there's this other lie about nicotine poisoning. They count every call into a poison control center from somebody that came near an e-cigarette as a poison. That's false. Nobody has been poisoned by an e-cigarette. Even the nicotine liquid, it's possible it could be, but it's never been happening. So uh, they're killing the small businesses in this city because e-cigarettes are not being made preponderantly by big evil tobacco. Yes. Big tobacco companies are now making e-cigarettes, but the thousands of e-cigarette companies are being will be put out of business by some of these ridiculous regulations that are being uh, called public health measures. They're not public health measures. They're the opposite of public health. They're basically just tax and money grabs, and we should resist it. Don't let the politicians and the big nonprofits that are being paid off by pharmaceutical companies take your... Uh, take your vapor products away from you. It's time to stand up and be counted. Save there you go. I mean, how how great was that? I mean, in four I, minutes. I was going to say, is was was that like Stanley's brother or just a close cousin? <laughs> I mean, right there in four minutes, I just love Dr. Ross. I mean, he's he's you know he's in my top five, obviously. But uh, here in, in four minutes, boom! He just laid everything that we just talked about earlier, Jay. In the in the first thirty minutes, mm-hmm. he just in four minutes just told you. It's all bullshit. And, and this is the reason why it's bullshit. This man does not smoke. This this man does not vape. Uh, the, you know, he's he's nearing his the end of his life. He's an, a very old gentleman. But look, uh, he might not like that. <laughs> I said that was true. He's an old guy. But here he, here you have a guy from the American Council on Science of Health preaching the truth and why everybody's trying to take away this product, including the FDA and the CDC and every other fucking bullshit organization that we're seeing out there that's trying to restrict the sale of these products. It's yeah, all look, about money. Look, once you've been around long enough, you start to see the pattern. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the, this industry. Sure. This is how it works. This is how government works. This is how big business works. If there's a threat to an industry, you see government and alphabet soup groups band together to try to squash this interference. And that's what we are. We are interference. Mm-hmm. Very well that's said. Not, that's not to say that we can't win, because we can. But we have to we have to be clear and concise with our message. Well, he said the same thing. It's time to stand up and not and, and not let him push us around anymore. All the years that I smoked, I got pushed around because, you know, I, I always had I always felt guilty. You know, I always felt guilty for for smoking. Uh, you can tax me; I wouldn't say shit. Uh, you could put me out to the curb. Eventually, you put me behind the you know the dumpster. Eventually, you sent me down two blocks from the hospital at Minnesota at Mayo Clinic in negative twelve degree weather. <laughs> but I did it to smoke. I never said a damn thing. We've all been there because we're ashamed. But you know what? We're not ashamed anymore. So we don't have an excuse. We exactly. don't have an excuse. 
exactly. you know, I, I, I didn't agree with, with all the hubbub, you know, going against smokers because I believe in individual rights. Sure. Uh, but now they don't have a leg to stand on with vaping. They mm-hmm. do literally do not have a leg to stand on. So, so why are we giving this up to them? Because it's tough? Good question. Because we're too busy uh, with uh, marketing. Well, I'm not. You're not. Yeah, I know, but we're a very, very small portion. I had this conversation with somebody today on the phone, a uh, concerned uh, vendor, and I told them the same thing. I said, I'm very, very concerned on the direction um, that we're going. It's tough. It's tough. All right, let me lay down a little uh, timeline here before we bring our guest then, uh, Jay. Mm-hmm. Um for for those of you that might not know, and, and and this is a portion of the of the replay that you can just cut out and send to somebody. I'm going to try to keep it under an hour long, so you kind of understand the process of how we kind of got here. Uh, a lot of this information was given to me by by uh, uh, Azim Chowhury, the the FDA attorney, and I did have him on the show. So if you want to search back in the replays where we kind of addressed a lot of these issues in more detail, you can certainly look for that episode. It's titled uh, uh, "Interview with Azim Chowhury," but. Uh, the FDA, uh, for, for many years, did not have jurisdiction uh, uh, um, over tobacco products under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Uh, but that changed, obviously, in 2009, uh, where the Family Smoking Prevention Tobacco Control Act became law and that amended the FDCA, and it gave the agency the authority to regulate the, um, the manufacture, the labeling, distribution, and marketing of tobacco products in the United States. Specifically, although a tobacco product is defined broadly in pertinent part as any product made or derived from tobacco that is intended for human consumption, the law only provides the FDA with immediate authority to regulate through its Center for Tobacco Products. Cigarettes, cigarette tobacco, roll-your-own-tobacco, and smokeless tobacco. The law further provides, however, that any other products uh, may be uh, tobacco products may be subject to FDA regulation, but only after the agency deems such products to be regulated products pursuant to its rulemaking authority. So that's how we got here. There was no jurisdiction over these other products. And it's uh, here I have two critical points. It's not just electronic cigarettes that are falling under this definition, okay? Uh, we have premium cigars. We have other tobacco products that have not fit into that group that is being scrutinized right now. Pipe tobacco, dissolvable tobacco, cigars, and electronic cigarettes, just to name a few. So it's not just us. Well, snooze. Uh, yes. Not yeah. just us that are fighting this fight. There's other people behind the scenes that are, obviously they're fighting for their industry. So the premium cigar industry will fight for their, for their industry. Uh, and, uh, and so forth and so forth. And, and, what, we're, and what we're doing, is, uh, of course, is an electronic cigarette to, to fight this, uh, this deeming regulation. Uh, so the first uh, step of the process, and I sent you a link earlier to kind of look at the regulation map. It's the informal rulemaking and all the steps that uh, have to be taken to come into a rule, to submit a rule, publicize a final rule uh, on these other uh, tobacco-derived products. We're currently on step eight, Jay. Correct. Uh, um, ironically, the steps are going up in this graph. I will put it in the chat for you guys later to to uh, bookmark it if you want to have it for reference. I think it's a, it's a great great piece to have. Uh, it should be actually stepped down with a cliff at the end, so we can all just jump after after step nine. I think the point is that the the steps go up. <laughs> To the end of the cliff, and then we jump back. <laughs> you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a step 10, and I'm going to put one of those motorized scooters 
at the end. <laughs> so, so from step nine. Put a taco truck because we're all going to be selling tacos at the end of all. I'm going to the exit strategy, which is scooters. Uh, but uh, step one, uh, initiating events, the agency uh, initiatives for rulemaking, uh, origin for such things as agency priorities and plans, new scientific data, new technologies as electronic cigarettes. Step two, determination uh, whether a rule is needed, which uh, obviously passed in our case. Step three, preparation of proposed rule. Uh, and this was uh, the, uh, the the first set of deeming regulations that were dropped back in um, in April of last year. Right. Uh, which I, I would just say that the, these first three steps likely happened within a month. Yes. And uh, what's really interesting in this chart is I kind of looked down on the specific analysis for steps three and seven. Uh, and since on step three, we're on step three, let me just touch on a, a couple of the stuff that I saw down here that was uh, that was interesting. And this is kind of the determination if this rule, um, you have to go through this analysis to see if this is going to uh, fit the, the, the specific step here, step three, in order to be turned into the to the OIRA. So some of the question is, does the rulemaking propose uh, includes a, a proposed rule? If yes, does the rule include any federal mandate that may result in the expenditure, you know, the costs, what it's going to cost? Uh, on the private sector of $100 million in any one year adjusted annually. If it's yes, then you have to prepare unfunded mandates and analysis. Uh, <laughs> is, <laughs> uh, is the rule discretionary rule that federalism implications and impose substantial uh, unreimbursement direct compliance cost on state? and lo- What's going to cost for us to regulate this product, basically? Mm-hmm. But here's the interesting one, which is EO 13175. Is the rule a discretionary rule that has tribal implications and imposes substantial uh, earned reimbursements to direct compliance costs on Indian tribal governments? If yes, prepare tribal summary impact statement. Does the rule have total tribal implications and preempt tribal law? If yes, prepare tribal summary impact statement. Um, do we have do we have to, do we have time to turn this over to the Indians? <laughs> do we, do we, it, it, this is this is the funny thing because it, uh, just really quickly in Massachusetts, uh, the Attorney General's regulations that they released last month had a had very similar stipulations. You know whether or not there would be a strong impact on business in in the locality, mm-hmm. and they had determined arbitrarily that no, just just flat out no. Not even taking into account that there were probably a hundred businesses that would have to shut down if these rules were passed as was yeah. and were were completely and fully uh, enforced. Right. Um, moving ahead, step four was to submit it to the OBMB as they did back then. The first rule uh, was rejected. Uh, I don't know if not a lot of people uh, know this. Uh, uh, then the second rule came in, which the OMB accepted, and then they publicized the proposed ruling that we all read with 179 pages. And uh, and then it opened up for public comments, which, again, the response, uh, not as much as I would like to see, but I think they received uh, a valid of about 75,000 comments, particularly on e-cigarettes. And I was surprised that it was that many. Really? Yes, I was surprised that it was that many. Because, um, I mean, we were strictly, you know, you and I and, and our, our ilk were strictly focused on the vaping community, mm-hmm. uh, which we know we're lucky to get 5% response. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think that the fuck the FDA comments were removed, by the way, from those public comments. Um, moving on to step, step seven, preparation of final rule, which is what they've been kind of doing uh, uh, for the past, uh, you know, since the p- public comment uh, period closed. And by law, they had to read every public comment that was there, including the, the fuck. I think they have like a kind of like a like a throttling process. Like if it picks up on a word, it just automatically just removes it from the queue. Yeah. Somebody somebody up in Washington told me that one time. Uh, and, which brings us to to step eight, which is that the final rule now has been submitted to IRA. 
for review and uh, and now it could stand there at, you know a week uh, two weeks a month usually up to 90 days is my understanding our guests will be able to explain a little bit more yeah um, I, I, last time it was uh, last time it was submitted to OMB it was about a month I want to say mm-hmm. does that sound about right yeah I think it was a little bit over a month after it got back to um, the second time it wasn't there long because they basically just adjusted what the what the OBM told them to adjust and it didn't sit very long um, that's how we kind of got to step eight, which we are now. So we're almost at the end of the industry. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I, I think, again, what's really, really important is I read this article. Uh, this was actually written at the Cigar Authority. I will put it in the chat for people to have as well. And I know this is the cigar industry, but it's kind of funny that they really kind of picked out some stuff. They actually have two options are a possibility and this might be just pertain to the cigar industry but obviously it affects us as well option one this would regulate all cigars pipe tobacco electronic cigarettes nicotine gels hookah tobacco and dissolvables except accessories of a tobacco product and option two would regulate these six categories of tobacco products but exempt premium cigars and tobacco product accessories from regulations which you know i highly doubt that's going to happen but you know quite possibly it could uh, except accessories which include such items as lighters cigarette cutters humidors and cases the initial fda document defined premium cigars as having a minimum cost of 10 bucks uh, so according to nato which is the national association of tobacco outlets the fda has proposed nine kinds of regulations that are currently already applicable to cigarettes uh, and the other tobacco products that they already have under the control uh, of the CTP. Am I going too fast? I just got so much stuff to talk about. I'm sorry. I can't believe how t- how fast you talk, Dimitri. I mean, for somebody who, who has English as a second language, you're insane. You are an insane You know how individual. I get into it when I get into it, right? So if option, uh, if option one was passed, they, they kind of read off nine regulations. Uh, manufacturers would be required to register each of their tobacco manufacturing. Oh, by the way, before I get started with this. Uh, zero nicotine is not exempt. So please stop saying that. Stop. Yeah. If it is for the purpose of vaping, zero milligram is included. Stop saying that publicly. It pisses me off. Uh, all right. Manufacturers would be required to register each of their tobacco manufacturing facilities with the FDA and report any harmful and potentially harmful constituents. Again, this I'm not saying these are the proposed regulations. I just don't want people to misunderstand me. All I'm saying is that this is according to NATO, what they have posted, their nine most critical uh, steps in the process. Uh, manufacturers will be required to submit a list of the tobacco products they produce and a list of ingredients in each product. What do you think about that? Uh, say goodbye to IP. <laughs> Modified. <laughs> Modified risk descriptors such as light, low, and mild could not be used to describe the regulated tobacco product. If you can't use light, low, and mild, what are we going to use? I mean, we are at least 95% less harmful than tobacco. We're not going to be able to put it on the label. And, 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 uh, and that's funny because on a cigarette pack, how many of them actually last the, list the uh, milligram? None. None. How many of us list the milligram? All. All. Go figure. Don't tell me. Do I have to change the labels now? Uh, free samples of the deemed tobacco products will not be allowed, which pretty much, again, I think here, that could, that's such a broad definition. I'm not against uh, getting hit. <laughs> I w- <laughs> Did I tell you this? I was in Tennessee a few weeks ago at Knoxville, and I'm sitting there taking a picture on Instagram with this dude. 
He's like, oh, let's take a picture. I was like, that's great. And while we're taking the picture, a bag of liquid flies off the stage and just hits me in the face. And they snap. (laughs) I swear to God, I have the picture. I'm tagged on Instagram. When the bag hits me in the face, they snap the picture. And my face looks like I just got punched by Muhammad Ali. It's like, oh, yeah. I'm just like that. I'm like, like, dude, look how lucky you are. You got a picture with a vaping Greek and you want a bag of e-liquid. That's my next next e-liquid line. It's going to be called float like a a butterfly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, all right, I'm gonna ju- I'm gonna skip over uh, five. I'm gonna go straight to six. FDA enforcement actions can be taken against manufacturers whose tobacco products are determined to be adulterated or misbranded. Ooh, <laughs> there you go. There goes about ninety seven percent of the industry. Right. Uh, the minimum age to purchase deemed tobacco product would be eighteen years old. Uh, the retailers would require anybody that looks under twenty seven to purchase. I think that's something we all can agree with, and I think we're working as an industry to implement that. Yeah, we've all been on board with that. Here's a, here's a, an, another toughy one. A new health warning would be required on all deemed tobacco products, plus all cigarette tobacco and roll your own tobacco. And in all advertisements for these tobacco products, this warning would read, Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. This new health warning would not be required for cigarettes or smokeless tobacco products because federal law already requires health warnings on these two products. However, this new health warning would be required on advertisements created by retailers for deemed tobacco products, cigarette tobacco, and uh, roll-your-own tobacco. Nine, a prohibition on the sale of the deemed tobacco products through vending machines, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Kind of we knew all that. I'm going to go back to five, okay? Well, uh, I, was, I was just going to say yeah. that a lot of this language uh, closely mirrors exactly what the AG's regulations in mass uh, said, yeah. almost verbatim. Which was a, a, an attorney general in Massachusetts, which yes. we saw the document that's floating around with attorney generals, and we're going to see that come back to uh, uh, to a lot of states to haunt them. There's a lot of attorney generals that are taking that for, uh, seriously. Yeah, they're, um, all, they're all together. They're all in cohorts yes, together. Yes, they are. By the way, just a little uh, side note. I'm, I'm, I'm so, so veering off topic today, but I need to bring this up. This morning, I had a phone conference with our lobbyists here in Tennessee, and we renewed our contract for next year. Uh, and uh, they've done a great job for us. Uh, we don't, you know, we have a really good relationship. Uh, the lobbyist assistant, uh, her boyfriend, quit with vaping for the last three or four months. Uh, in fact, he's flying. Uh, he was flying out to Vegas, and his ESIC broke in the uh, his carry on. And the first thing that he did uh, when he stopped, uh, got, got to, to the strip, he went to Vapor Kings and bought another set because he didn't want to go buy cigarettes, which is it's fantastic. Okay. So that gives a really good relationship with legislators when she's talking about the products. You can say, "Oh, I got a personal story," which is great. But that's not what I want to get. What I want to get at is that since the FDA regulations are in OIRA, I told her today, I informed her, and this is a way how you train your lobbyists, right? When you're talking to them, I said, this is a great tool to use this year in the upcoming legislation session. If anybody brings anything to you, you can say, hold on just a second. The FDA has, you know, done great progress and the regulations are already in OIRA. We're expecting a deeming rule at the beginning of the year. And what that does is it slows down the legislators because if they know that the FDA is coming out with a deeming rule in a few months, why take a chance and make a mistake and put a bad, you know, bill on the table? So, that's you just know, you know, I I agree and I disagree. I mean, we live in two very different states, uh-huh. and in my state, they've been they've been piping up about how the FDA is moving too slowly. Sure. And every state, every state, not just your state. Yes, yes. Uh, but we but, haven't had anything up to now, Jay. Is what I'm saying. We haven't, but. Yeah. Massachusetts, in particular, is using that to their advantage. They're saying we need to move now because the FDA is dragging their feet. Sure. 
Um, so we're seeing a lot of mirrored legislation here locally, and we're looking at more more of that legislation right. next year. Uh, you know, how do we fight that when the FDA supposedly, you know, the, these deeming regs are just just going to get released? And we know from from what the FDA has said before that enforcement will begin roughly two years after. We don't have to tell them that. Don't, don't well, tell them I, that. No, I don't plan on telling them that. But uh, all I'm saying is that up to now they have said the same thing. They have said that we don't, you know, it's taking too long. But now we can say, hey, listen, it's moving along. Don't do anything. Let's, you know, let's um, let's take our steps. Let's see what the FDA is going to do. Maybe it'll slow them down. That was my my uh, my. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly what what Greg Connolly has said, uh, you know, to all the legislative uh, yeah. bodies that he's spoken to. Right. Is, but now we, at least we have it; we know it's there. We can prove it. So you know they can't they can't say anything. So um, moving along, I want to go back to number five because I think this is extremely important. It, okay. And and again, we're going to get our guests' uh, uh, opinion on this as well too. Number five says for e-cigarettes and other newer novel tobacco products that were not on the market as of February two uh, thousand seven, manufacturers will have to file a pre-market tobacco application. So look, everything that we've talked about and we're going to talk about tonight is moot because if this is still in there, which is the pre-market application, you kiss this industry goodbye. Now, here's my question. Uh, there is legislation pending that would move up that grandfather date. Right, right. right. So this is, what I wa- this is where I wanted to get at. Okay. Everybody, again, shifting their focus to the federal regulations, forgetting that we have H.R. 2058, which is the coal bill, right. that would basically fix this problem. So how, what is more important for us right now? To focus on the FDA on a dimming world that we don't really need, or to get the support and get our representative to support the coal bill, which is HR 2058, pushing the grandfather date. It's not going to save the industry, but it's definitely going to buy us some time, and it's definitely going to allow these products to remain on the market until they determine, uh, you know, what the actual final date will be. And well, that's been- that's the question. How how different is the process for a new tobacco product versus a substantial equivalence? Um. You know, how many craft e-liquid manufacturers, for example, speaking selfishly, how many craft e-liquid manufacturers are going to be able to remain in business using this this substantial equivalence process? Not many, I would gather. That's a good question. Maybe we can ask our our guest as soon as he comes on. Uh, I certainly believe that the the grandfather date – it's 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 important to, to understand the basis of it. Obviously, uh, you know how the how the date was set and what FDA says that under the Tobacco Control it was introduced by Congress, and really the FDA has to enforce what Congress gave them. I mean, this is not really an FDA issue. We were hoping that it would be, and we we're hoping we're hoping we haven't seen the final rule. We're hoping there might be a modified risk category, an accelerated pre market application, something right. that maybe Mitch Zeller had an epiphany. He believes in tobacco harm reduction, uh, and maybe he's made it easier. Yeah, I we're, believe we're speaking, that no, we're speaking we're speaking to unknowns right now. I mean, yeah, yeah, we're yeah, making yeah. a lot of guesses because yeah. we don't know what the final deeming reg is going to look yeah. like. Let me go ahead and get my guest in. He has been waiting very, very, very patiently. Joining us from the American E-Liquid Manufacturing Standards Association, I have Mr. Lou Ritter, and he has been traveling too. So I really appreciate you taking the time, Lou. Sorry, I kept you waiting. Sometimes I go off on these rants and I forget. <laughs> no problem. Hello, everybody. Uh, how's it going, Lou? Uh, I, I think you have heard what I've, I've been trying to kind of lay out the ground, how we got here to step eight of the FDA uh, uh, regulations process. And you've been through this before. 
uh, with AIMSA and through the first uh, deeming regulations that went through OIRA. So obviously my first question is going to be, um, based on your experience that you've had in the past, uh, what happens now? We have a final rule that has been submitted. Um, what should we know? What's the process that's going on now? Unfortunately, the answer is going to be not a definitive one. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I understand from people that have more information than I do, mm-hmm. apparently OMB has the ability to sit on it as long as they feel necessary to work through it. So the ninety also, days, is, the ninety days, is not really set in stone because it obviously says it could stay usually up to ninety days, but that's not set in stone, correct? That, from my understanding, that would be correct. It's okay. not set in stone. However, in this case, there's a lot of political pressure to move this thing forward. So my guess is we'll probably see something within ninety days. But I also understand OMB has a big backlog. Again. They can jump something up if they feel it's necessary, and there's a lot of political pressure on this. So we, the answer is we just don't know, and uh, we also don't know when we're going to get to see it. Whether we'll see it before or after OMB sends out their comments. Did we uh, on, on the first set of deeming regulations that were submitted? Uh, how quickly was it before we were able to get our hands on it to look at the rule? Once they submitted it, at that point, once they once it was released out of OMB. It was it was available, so we, we got it. We got to see it pretty quickly. So my guess is that once it comes out of OMB, mm-hmm. I, I also understand that the last round had significant changes as a result of sure. going through OMB. So again, we don't know what they submitted. We don't know what OMB is going to do with it, and we don't know how quickly it'll take FDA to process whatever comments come out of OMB. Uh, something that a lot of people don't uh, m- might not realize is that as stakeholders in this industry, you do have the right to uh, to request uh, a meeting with them, and you've been through that process, correct? Yes, we did meet with OMB, um, and uh, AIMSA is evaluating you know the the next step. Um, I certainly hope that we will will consider it and look at it. We have to talk to council, and you know AIMSA is, a, is an association of with a board and so you know i mean there's there's a process we have to go through internally to to decide to do it and and get it approved and then we have to ask for it sure but let's talk about your experience the first time you sat down and and, and correct me if i'm wrong you even if you request a meeting you don't really know what the rule is going in is that correct when we met with them last time we did not know what the rule was so we how- really just went to more as an as an effort to educate i mean just the same thing when we first went out to the FDA the very first time to show them our standards. How difficult is that, and how difficult is it to judge um, what to say if you don't actually know what the rule that they have in their hand is? I mean, you have to be a little bit more vague when you're talking about tobacco harm reduction and manufacturing processes as it is for AIMSA or any other group that's going to go there and meet with them. It's it's difficult. I mean, it's because, again, it's more of a listening session. They're, they're, it's not a specifically a listening session. They may ask more questions. When you go to the FDA in a listening session, it's a listening session. They're there to listen. And if they ask questions, they're only going to ask questions about your presentation. Um, when uh, Azim and I went and met with OMB, it was a little less structured. We had prepared a handout, and we know that OMB focuses more on the economic factors um, which are everything. I mean, they look at, when they look at econ- economic factors, they look at the, 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 the economy facets in terms of how is this impacting the economy, number of jobs and potential exports, but they also look at the economic impacts of enforcement. Mm-hmm. So there's a big question. We don't know what, the, what this rule is going to say, so we don't know what's going, what it's going to cost the government in terms of oversight. I mean, if hypothetically, <clears throat> 
you know how big the PMTA application is sure. um, and that process. Suppose every e-liquid manufacturer that's out there submits an application for every one of their SKUs. How long is it going to take the FDA to go through that? 75 years and uh, two months, at least. <laughs> at least. There's, there's still lots of I don't know. Yeah, there are. There but are. but I, I hope that, that your audience will, will, will kind of grasp and maybe share around is from you, know, I, you and I, we've been doing this for, for quite some time and we've been paying attention to what happens in the community. And the community gets pretty aggressive and angry at FDA. Yeah, they do. But it's, it's, it's so much bigger than that. I mean, it's really not just a matter of the FDA making a decision about a product. There's all kinds of political pressures here. You know, you saw there was a meeting that took place at OMB, you know, with, with a select group of people from Big Tobacco that and, and not Big Tobacco, rather, from, from the, the health industry. I mean, there, there was like, you know, tobacco-free kids and the various people. What surprised me was the timing of that meeting because it was so close to the date that these actually went out. So, you know, it makes you scratch your head and wonder, you know, why, how is it that the timing is so close? But there's just so many factors in here. There's tax issues, again, which OMB may look at. They may not look at because it's an economic issue. It doesn't mean that they're in a position to make a decision about it. The FDA does not deal with tax issues. Um, you know, we've got the issues that, that we're seeing with the states with the master settlement agreement and the excise taxes and how some states may very well be very dependent upon tobacco taxes to the point where they don't know what to do if they don't have that money or if that money starts to fall off. And they can bankrupt. I mean, literally, they can bankrupt these states for sure. Um, Three, four, hold on a second before, before, yeah, hold on a second. Those tobacco bonds are not guaranteed. Right, right. So by by the states. So, I mean, it gets, every piece gets like layer upon layer has complexity. So even if they change the substantial equivalency date, that doesn't mean that every product on the market today gets a free pass. Mm -hmm. They still have to submit. So if tobacco companies, say Reynolds comes out with a cigarette with a new paper, a new cigarette paper That's on not it. Happen. The rest of the cigarette is the same. They still have to submit for a substantial equivalency. And from what I've heard, there may have even been cir- indicate circumstances in which a cigarette was rejected under substantial uh, I think it has been like four uh, four new uh, applications in the last, what, 10 years? Uh, I don't think that's <laughs> Well, they- there's been more applications than that. There have been yeah. a lot of rejections. Yeah. Um, some of the FDA notices point to it. I don't have them in front of me at the moment, but it basically changes the ability to apply for substantial equivalence um, for a product that just came out, you know, in in 2014. And if the date is 2017, you know, basically all the advanced products would not qualify to go the pathway of substantial equivalence. You have to keep in mind that within the Cinder of Tobacco product, um, there's three different pathways. One is the PMTA, one is substantial equivalence, and the other one is MRTP, modified risk tobacco products, which not a single product has ever passed. Right. So, I mean, it's just there's there's always layer upon layer. And then there's the question of well, once the federal rules get finalized and they start going down the you know, when, at some point we're gonna see litigation start. And then it gets into the question what happens with all the state laws? Can the states override and go even more strict, or what happens to the laws that exist within states that have already been established in, the, in states that are trying to do it before the FDA regulation comes out? You know, which one is going to supersede which? These get into a lot of legal technical questions. It's um, really a very complex. It, it really is. And before we get into a lot of complex stuff, I just want to mention 347-308-8329. Press 1 if you have any questions or comments or Twitter at Vaping Greek. Hashtag Smoke Free Radio. Uh, how intimidating was? I mean, I've I've met with Mitch Zeller and the FDA, and it was uh, I, I, I was sweating a little bit. How intimidating is is for the stakeholders to meet with this at this stage of the game with uh, with with the uh, OMB? 
It's a subjective question. They were actually, you know, I've, I've heard stories where people, they were quite terse with some people and short. Um, and with us, they were quite friendly. Mm-hmm. So I was not intimidated. Um, but. Oh, did we lose Lou? Jay, you there? Particularly intimidated by it, but. It, it can be for someone who's who's not familiar at, at dealing with government entities and and dealing with this process. It just a lot of it depends on a variety of factors. How warm and friendly they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, I I don't want to ask you guess. I know you're not a person that likes to guess uh, a lot when it comes <clears> to to the final rule. Uh, my opinion. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, my opinion is that no matter what the deeming rule is, it's not going to favor the open vapor industry. It's hard to say. I've actually seen three different distinct things coming out of the FDA, which give me hope. I mean, there's certainly nothing to to hang your hat on um, or anything else of any weight beyond a feather. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But we we saw um, at TMA, uh, I think you were were there. I don't know if you made it to that lunch where uh, David Ashley, the science director for CTP, did a presentation during lunch. I actually captured a bunch of his slides on my phone. I just haven't had a chance to go through them yet. I've just been too busy. But his slides actually really reflected that they were looking very closely at the dynamics and the intricacies of open systems. So that was the first thing that started to to make me feel a little hopeful. Um, The next thing was the in the ISO process for the ISO public comment through ANSI, the FDA submitted a public comment, and some of your audience may not know really what happened. ISO is the International Organization of Standardization. Each country has its own division. These are for profit. So in the United States, it's ANSI. England is BSI, British Standards Institute. France is AFNOR. So AFNOR made a recommendation to ISO to consider looking at standards. And they made a weird recommendation. They actually said that, that what's called the Technical Committee 126, which is the technical committee that de- develops standards for tobacco products, they were suggesting that TC 126 do standards for nicotine-containing e-liquids and that a non-TC 126, a separate TC, um, would develop standards for non-nicotine-containing, which really makes no sense because we know the same manufacturers make both. Um, but there were about six public comments that were submitted for that process in, in response to ANSI to ISO, and the, the four that really substantiated their positions for a completely separate TC, for it not to be done by TC-126, um, included one from the FDA, which went to great lengths to say these are not the same as tobacco products. They need different considerations, and there's batteries, and there's buttons, and there's resistance, and you know, they went on for two for two and a half pages talking about how these products are not like combustible tobacco products and have different considerations. Yeah, I, I would th- I would think that you know if you're looking at the tobacco industry, the the environment in which tobacco is manufactured, you know, into a cigarette, um, even within our own community, we're we're demanding higher standards than that. Well, that's certainly true, and you know, Dimitri's been there when I've been at TMA and. <clears throat> FDA representatives are usually there. They'll probably be at the one next week. Um, and, you know, they they see what we're talking about, and they know that there are a whole bunch of uh, e-liquid manufacturers. And, and I'm actually very care- careful to, to clarify. I don't speak – I mean, I speak for on behalf of AMSA, but I'm always careful to say there are plenty of non-AMSA members who are doing ISO-level labs and testing for, sure. you know, flavorings and so forth. I'm, I'm, right. I, I'm always very open and talk about, you know, what I see going on, even though I only represent AMSA. But – 
it, they, they, they're that particular FDA, that particular FDA's ANSI uh, public comment did not mention the environment. So they just talked about the dramatic differences between combustible tobacco and electronic cigarettes. Okay. So to see that level of focus and that stronger position saying it should not be done by TC-126, that was the second thing that gave me some, some hope. Um, and then the last thing that gave me some hope was the ANPRM that came out about nicotine labeling. Mm-hmm. So one could easily say, well, that could apply to Sigalikes as well, but they made reference to bottles and, and you know, caps and things like that. See, so the, there, the, was those three things, those three items yeah. gave, gave me hope. The, the, I, think a lot, I think a lot of the industry, uh, especially some of the new players uh, in the industry that might have not kept up, as, as you said, like we have for the last five years, but... I think a lot of the industry believes that this will be a rule that's just going to drop and affect the entire industry. And, I, you know, I, from everybody that I've talked to, and I'm sure you have as well, too, uh, Lou, is, I mean, the, the rulemaking will be a process. I, I, I highly doubt they're going to drop something that's going to address every issue that it has with the industry. Uh, prime example, when we saw the first deeming regulations come, the, the draft, they, they didn't talk about flavors. They didn't talk about online sales. Uh, they didn't talk about advertising. They didn't talk about a lot of stuff. Uh, within within those deeming rules, and do you do you still believe that? Do you believe that this is going to be a final rule that it's actually going to be the beginning of the process to regulate this product? You know, my p- position keeps changing. When I first saw the the NPRM, you have to realize they they actually skipped a step. I mean, you look at what they did with the labels; they came with ANPRM, yeah. Advanced Notice of, pu- of Public Policy Rulemaking. Um, when it came to the first. Uh, issue on e-cigs, they came. They skipped over ANPRM because there's ANPRM, then there's public comment, then it goes to NPRM, then another public comment, then it goes to final. And we watched the same process happen with menthol and tobacco, um, and that's what they're doing with the, the nicotine labeling. But for this, for for e-cigs, they skipped over ANPRM. They went right to NPRM, and they lumped non-combustibles, e-cigarettes, in with combustibles: small cigars, premium cigars, pipe tobacco, and hookahs. So that was very strange to see that NPRM come out with all these products lumped together. Mm-hmm. In that NPRM, they really can't get into a lot of the detailed issues because they haven't deemed the product to be a tobacco product yet. So the first step is deeming it to be a tobacco product, right. which is what the NPRM was about, saying they're, they're notifying, there's a notice, we're going to deem these products to be tobacco products. Right. So in the final rule, they could very well get into those levels. If you'd asked, asked, and when I talked about this four months ago, when we were still anticipating something coming out during the summer, I said that what I, and I actually am on record, I think I even said it at GFN in June in Warsaw, um, I said that I anticipated just seeing a deeming rule with no details, with just a more to come. Sure. Um, because the issues get so complex, how are they going to handle oversights? And it depends on what they do with substantial equivalency date and how much flexibility within the Tobacco Control Act, which is what Ames's entire public comment is about, is how much flexibility they have. So how much of that flexibility they utilize. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, we then starts potential litigation, which can go on and on depending on you know who funds what and how deep the cases go. And the litigation could end up impacting a final rule, and it may not. 
I mean, there's just so many unknowns in this process. I, I wish I could be more more definitive, I know, but I, I, I just can't. I just can't. <laughs> I know. Just... I know it's very difficult, uh, Lou. The, uh, the reason, I mean, honestly, the reason I want you to to to, dis, to discuss a little bit in, in more detail is because you've been through that process, and I think a lot of the uh, post pre-draft uh, rule uh, companies that have come along and a lot of vendors listen to the show and obviously a lot of vapors but um, might not understand that you know this is the, 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 this is a critical step for us and how the OMB is going to handle this rule and what steps they're going to take to look at the financial impact do you think that they have enough data on the industry and by the industry obviously I always speak on our side of the industry the open vapor industry uh, do you think that they have enough data to make an assessment on the financial impact? No. No, I think the industry has really faltered, and I really encourage the industry to reach out for these opportunities. Um, you have to go with an agenda. I mean, you have to have material prepared. You need that material to be verifiable. You can't just go in there with, with guess numbers. I mean, they they have certain numbers that they can track in terms of this. And you, you've heard um, – you know, from the, the uh, Bonnie Herzog from Wells Fargo, you know, she makes a lot of projections, but she's basing it on trackable data. Sure. So C store, convenience store sales. I mean, there's certain things that they can track, um, you know, with like single likes, they can track that, but there isn't any real tracking of our industry. So the, the various organizations, whether they're state level organizations, whether they're the big organizations like Vista and, and um, Vaping Militia and CASA and SVADA, um, you know, can certainly put together whatever information they have amongst their members and they can certainly go in and say this is what we have amongst our members or if they can show other information this is how many stores there are in the United States or this is how many stores there are in this state, that state and the other state whatever you, whatever can be shown and, and has verify, is verifiable <clears throat> when we went and, and the document that we submitted is, is posted on the AIMSA website at that time we showed them financial projections we said we have so many members we you know it's not a requirement for them to disclose this information we asked for year over year sales numbers year over year employee numbers and, and it's tabulated I and mean, it's in the document and it's posted on the AIMSA website so anybody can go take a look at it at least for, for one potential example um, I'm sure there are better ways to do it you know a variety of ways to do it but bringing them accurate numbers that show them what the economic impacts are. I would say if you've got companies in your state or in your organization that do a lot of exporting, I would say try to find out how much, you know, product was was the the magnitude of the export market. How many employees, how many locations, how many, you know, year over year dollar sales. Lou, I've been preaching that for <clears throat> for years, you know that, that trying to get data. Uh, the, the problem is that you see that we don't have even our national organizations don't have nowhere near the membership of to reflect the true industry. Uh, it's 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 I mean it's well, you have national organizations that have 250 members or 300 members. Uh, you have state associations that have 70 out of 1000 vendors in the state. It's it's extremely difficult if we can't get everybody under an umbrella, whatever umbrella that is. To I, I was going to say, if, if you know, if you're if you're a mom and pop vape shop, you know, and and you're not part of an organization, you're not being counted, essentially, in in any of these statistics. So I think that's that's very important for us as as organizations to to bring these people on and help impart to them that. You know, if nothing else, this helps you be counted, whether it be statewide or federally. 
Well, that's that's where our network can potentially come in. I mean, the, the, one of the problems is that a lot of the vendors, understandably, don't want to re- reveal their numbers. Um, and, you know, that's understandable. But if we want to protect this industry, right now the window of opportunity is with OMB and they're looking at economics. So being able to show what the economic, economic impacts, how many dollars in payroll, how many employees, how many dollars in sales year over year, how much export out of the country, I mean, all of these are, are economic factors, but they require getting verifiable numbers. And, <clears throat> you know, we have a lot of state organizations, but not every vendor in the state is a member. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really don't know that much about, um, what is it, uh, Vape Search USA? Is that the organization? Va- I don't know, Dimitri, Va- do you know Va- any Vapor of those Search folks over USA. there? I tried to reach out to them a couple of times and, and we just missed each other. But I don't know how much data they have about the listings that they have, but they may have a good contact list. And if we could split up that list to a variety of people and say one person from every state, you go call all these people and see see how much information you can verify, then that list can be brought to OMB and say, look, this is as much as we could verify. And we know this is what's verifiable, but there's more that's not verifiable. Even on some of those websites, though, some of them are paid to get on. Uh, the, the, the data is incomplete. A lot of people don't follow up on it. Well, it's, it's a lot like e-liquid. I mean, yeah. there's there's a new there's a new uh, you know vape directory sure. every week. Sure. You know, sure. <laughs> Who, who's the right one? There is, there is. There's definitely not a database that that could be accurate for. And, and even if there was a database, I mean, who's going to be able to compile all that data? You know, and 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 be able to present it and know and be in a timely fashion at this stage of the game. Um, the well, the, what you what Bob? What is interesting? What can happen? Nobody's going to be able to do it collectively for everything sure. but hypothetically if Svada were to try to get economic numbers from their members and um, Vista were from, from its economic members and AIMSA from its members and so forth the member lists can easily be compared for duplications hopefully there aren't you know any in the economic factors or if they are they're highlighted by who's ever presenting saying you know these numbers may show up in there because they're members there too so that we're all transparent about it where it doesn't look like we're trying to pull anything wool over anybody's eyes but we can certainly show year over year data trends and we can show that you know there's obviously a lot more in in you know going on and you know, they they see it state by state or entity by entity you know they can see that that there's a pattern that that's developing and that this is only a fractional representation if it's funny that i saw this comment in from jim in the chat but black market how how much do you think that the omb will take into into consideration an industry that was born on the internet i mean it's born on youtube as i've always said yeah. uh an industry that was born on the internet uh how much do you think they're going to take the black market into consideration and I'd like to expand on that once. Sure. Once there's an answering. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, you want to expand on the question or on the answer? Well, it depends on what the answer is. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Luke. So it's a, it's a very interesting question. Um, I'm not convinced that OMB would try to speculate the magnitude of the black market. However, I would not be surprised if OMB and OIRA were to try to calculate and project what would be the cost of dealing with a black market which is a very different question because that right. has to deal with the cost of, so of dealing of dealing combating with combating like, basically enforcing rule to combat the black market that will be yeah, yeah. I mean, who, who would be tasked with enforcement of a black market in electronic cigarettes mm-hmm. that's another good question but it is an economic one when you get into the cost of that it of will that be choice. stanley Absolutely. Uh, and and are they even concerned with that? They may not even be concerned with that. 
you know, are they going to turn it into a schedule one drug? I, I mean, you know, how, how do you how do you, you know, you want to get the, the DEA involved in this? Like, you know, there are so many questions. Well, that comes into the issue of the rule, too, is, is you know, what are, is the rule, whatever they come out with, is it going to be enforceable? What's the logistics? What's the cost of enforcing it? What's the cost of oversight and, and monitoring right. for, and, for enforcement? I mean, it gets into a lot of different technical issues and, and economic ones. It depends on who's going to do it and who's going to oversee the people that are doing it and so right. on and so forth. Because so much, so much of what has made this industry successful is that the base technology is so simple. Whether you're talking about the hardware or the software, e-liquid, it's the technology is so simple that anybody, you know, given given nicotine, can make can make this happen in a garage. How do you, how do you enforce that? Well, I mean, they could. You you want a hypothetical? I can't can't say what you know what they will do. But if they wanted to eliminate it, they could eliminate the availability of nicotine. Nicotine is probably the easiest route, in my opinion. I've said that. Correct. Correct. Times. <laughs> that's that's the correct answer. Yeah. Yeah. That's the easiest thing for them to control. I mean, there's not a lot, of, a lot of ports of entry for nicotine in this country. That's for sure. Every everything else has has uh, you know has a a, a dual purpose. Yeah. Everything else in this industry, but a, it's—I mean, it's certain—it's certainly to the public benefit. We the problem is that we that there are terms that are used in here that have no definition in them. Uh, pub, what? How do you define what's public health? Well, if there's 450,000 people dying in the United States every year, and if electronic cigarettes save 100 of the thousand of those lives a year, is that a public benefit? I mean, well, it's a substantial portion of harm reduction. Depends. What's the number? That how do you define public benefit? It's kind of like these these municipalities that are going through the process of declaring these to be tobacco products and prohibiting the use of vapor products anywhere where cigarettes are used. It's a stupid process because there is no impact. They say that, that it's for public impact and public protection right. for the exposure issue. And my answer to that would be, well, you know, I don't believe that because any business can have the right to decide whether they're going to be vape friendly or not. And every consumer has the right to decide which businesses they're going to patron. Right, but we, we've already lost that fight, in essence, with smoking. We've already lost that fight. If you're talking about individual rights, business rights, we've already lost that fight. It's gone. Forget and it. I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with you because right now there's one that we just saw where it was just posted. I, I can't think of the, the state off the top of my head, but it was in Dimitri's thread where someone, where there was a state said you can't even taste, you can't vape in the vape shop. That's, you know, here. That's here it, in Massachusetts. It, <laughs> there's no justification for that because there's no public exposure. Nobody's in that shop that doesn't want to be in that shop, and it's a vape shop. Absolutely so. correct. However, the, the problem is, is that the only challenge to that is for somebody to step up and put forth hundreds of thousands of dollars to challenge it in court. And, and we're having a hard time finding a, a vendor. Well, get, get ready because that's... That's the next step in this yeah, process. Certainly, once, certainly. once the rule yeah, drops, then the next step is going to be litigation. Litigation. Uh, uh, Who's going to step up and fund it? How well, they're going to step I, up and fund it? I mean, those are a lot of good in, questions. In theory, that will be easier at a federal level than at the state level, at least in my region. Have you? I mean, listen. Let's be honest. There, there's already uh, law uh, law teams ready to go, and I think no matter what the deeming rule is, there will be lawsuits <laughs> to follow, uh, depending on what group is going to be suing. Right? I hope. I hope so because well, yeah. I, I'm I'm sure of it. I know. I know. I know that there are groups ready to sue now. Well, how what we've seen in the past is that the FDA has 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 given a two year window for enforcement, and then on top of that, we've got 
litigation. Well, that's who window you were. That's who your window is not absolute. There are it's other not, clocks. Yeah. I don't have all the information in front of me. Yeah, it's not. It's I mean, not two I mean, years. There's I'm, other stuff that's going to take. Uh, but but I, I want to clarify that real quick. I want to clarify the two-year window is not necessarily true, as Lou said. There's other enforcement that could be within the rule that might take effect in 30 days or six months. Uh, oh, no. There's other portions of the rulings within the rule that that might affect the industry as well too so let's not just sit back and say that this is going to be a two-year thing but litigation will definitely happen there's no doubt in my mind um impact on public health is that even a consideration with the at this stage of the process uh lou and the reason why i'm asking you is uh because you know mitch Zeller has publicly acknowledged that e-cigarettes and products you know these these vapor products do not have the same risks as the combustible tobacco okay uh whether he wants to admit it again or not he's publicly said that and um and and given that he's heading the ctp now do you think at this stage of the game which is step eight do you think that the impact of the public health will be taken into consideration i don't know that that's an omb consideration i don't know the full I, I don't question. know the full spectrum of omb considerations but sure. but public health is is basically what the fda is charged with is is ensuring you know that something is not going to be detrimental to the yeah. public health and and you know to what extent is it and you know is it beneficial is it is it detrimental how much so and these are completely subjective issues actually when you look at the pmta process got to keep in mind the 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 tobacco control act was designed and written to try to get rid of tobacco make it as difficult as possible so the 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 three different pathways we know what's with substantial equivalence they can be as it is very subjective and they can be as tight as they want like i said cigarette paper could from one cigarette changing the paper mm-hmm. could could make something no longer substantially equivalent. It's up to the FDA. They have that kind of flexibility. Defining public health is something else. They have that kind of flexibility. MRTP has been so difficult, no product has gotten through. And PMTA, when you look at the application, every single segment of it is fairly subjective. You don't have a, a, a application completion checklist. And I believe even the last segment may say something like "and or anything else the FDA deems necessary." Sure. So they can can't they can reject any application as being sure. incomplete, and pretty much it will Which because everything is so subjective. You can't say, "Well, yes, it is complete. Here's the checklist, and I've we've given you everything." Well, you know, go look at it. There's no checklist. Uh, Bruce Bruce brought up a good point in the chat, and he's right that advertising child sale restrictions give. This is what I was talking about earlier because I have actually seen where they actually broke down the timetable of this in one of the conferences that we attended, Lou, where they said that some of these uh, 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 enactments will will be taken uh, automatically as soon as the rule drops, and that, that is absolutely correct. So let's not just sit back and think that we have a two year window. As far as the uh, as far as the how do you deem what's being advertised to children? Um. No, uh, adver- advertising in general of the product, just like they do with tobacco product. Now, they want to say you can't, you can't have ads on TV. You can't have ads on um, uh, race cars. Uh, child cell restrictions is probably the bottling and the, the age restrictions and so forth. All that's going to take uh, effect immediately. Well, there are actually a, there are a couple of different clocks. And again, I don't have the materials with me, but there are a couple of different clocks that start at different times. And if you get an opportunity to you know, interview Azim again, um, or someone else in the legal field. I did, can, I did an episode yeah, about this Greg, a year Greg, ago. Greg, actually, Greg Conley probably knows what the different clocks are in the mm-hmm. different timelines. I actually so. did an episode about this a year ago when I, I attended that conference and actually broke down everything that could take in, uh, effect, and plus the other bodies that are looking to to uh, pull some kind of a ruling on, on electronic cigarettes, and not just the FDA, right? So um, the grandfather date, we need to touch on this a little bit um, um, because uh, Jay brought an interesting point up as well, too. Um, 
it, you know, everybody that I've spoken to among the industry, Lou, has said the same thing, that, you know, we're focusing a lot on this FDA. Uh, the grandfather date, though, is do, – do you consider it to be one of the most important steps? I think it's I think it's absolutely essential. I mean, if they don't change the grandfather date, it, it you know, it, it – it, ch- it changes what products can potentially go that pathway. It's one of three pathways to get a product approved. So, you know, does it impact uh, a, a PMTA application? You know, well, maybe yes and maybe no. It depends. So for hypothetically, for the, the viability of applying through the pathway of substantial equivalence, if the date doesn't change, anything with variable voltage could never even could be can try to apply. Mm-hmm. Because it came after that date, right? So anything that came to market after that date. So the only thing that could potentially go that pathway is whatever product was on the market as of that date. And then it would have to go through the application process for substantial equivalence. So changing the date to the date of the final rule, whether it's the date the final rule was released to OMB, whether it's the date of the NPRM, I think it was April 14th, 2014, or the date that the final rule goes in, whatever they choose if they move it forward, then any product that's on the market then has the at least the opportunity to apply through the pathway of substantial equivalence. But it is no, by no means, it is no guarantee that any product that's on the market today will stay on the market. It's still going to have to go through an application. It's just going to have to go through the application of the pathway of substantial equivalence as opposed to a PMTA. So what, what about e-liquid? Is there a difference between, you know, the hardware versus the software? Well, so it depends on how far the FDA takes it. I mean, one of the arguments that I've been trying to make, and, and I hope to continue to reinforce, is that what we've proven with AIMSA is that there are certain things, there are baselines that are very easily establishable, and we've proven it, and they're very easy to maintain. Identifying a, an analysis, a molecular analysis for the quality of nicotine, which AIMSA has done, um, is very easy to monitor with evidentiary documentation on a batch level. The accuracy of the nicotine, we're using plus or minus 10%. There are arguments to make it tighter. One direction lower for lower nicotines might be looser. For higher nicotines, it might be a little higher, uh, tighter. But whatever, well, whatever it is, that's easily verifiable. You know, it's a titration. It's, it's very easy to verify if you're within that range. The same thing with the quality of the VG and PG, you know, USB certified through the entire chain of custody. The quality of the manufacturing labs. You know, then the childproof caps, the labelings. I mean, these are baselines. Right. And so if we can find a way to make an argument that, you know, bar, the, barring any addition, other add-ins, the primary four ingredients of liquid are these, and they're going to be the same throughout the industry. Right. Now, you may have a manufacturer that wants to put, you know, deer penis in or whatever it was that guy was trying to sell. Deer guy. antler. <laughs> no penis. Oh, God. I Different part that. of the body there, Lou. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, that that kind of obviously goes outside the boundaries. Now, once if you can even get them to consider and say, okay, well, all four of these ingredients, they're all, you know, we can monitor things with the nicotine quality and the accuracy of content, the quality of the VGPG. Now, of course, we get into the flavoring issue. Now, we know there are two molecules of concern that we know of right now, diacetyl and acetylpropenyl. That so, we're concentrating on, yes. Well, those those we know that there's a focus on. We know that there are tests to identify the presence. We know that even if you have flavorings that show non-detectable, when they're combined, they may result in trace elements. Again, there are things that we know. So it just depends. If the FDA chooses, they could simplify this process. They could choose to go licensing for different 
the products at different nicotine strengths. There are a variety of different ways they could potentially go. Mm-hmm. Um, is, there, is are, there-, there are baselines that are established, and if we can get them to to acknowledge that you know, certain credentials, having a certain cleanliness and maintained. I mean, they, they certainly monitor alcohol manufacturing and bar, you know, the, or ATF does. And then and there's bars, they get, get overseen. How are they, you know, how much alcohol are they putting in? And what's the it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because I mean, alcohol manufacturing is specifically when you're talking about distilling is actually relatively loose. Uh, there's, there's really not all that much, uh, you know, uh, regulation going on there. Um, it, would it behoove us to take more of a ask, ask for forgiveness as opposed to ask for permission approach as far as e-liquid manufacturing goes here? You can't, you, you can't even begin to, to address that. I mean, it all depends on what they come down with. And, and you know, they're going to be looking at molecular analysis. They're going to be looking at trying to measure and quantify. Um, one of the things that I saw in one of the documents for one of the conferences I read um, was talking, you know, the people were saying, well, shouldn't the, the nicotine that's on the label be the same thing as the nicotine that's delivered? Obviously, the person who made that recommendation didn't know that there are a variety of variables which impact how much nicotine gets delivered, but it's never what's on the bottle. I mean, just oh, Dr. Constantinos Farsalinos's plasma nicotine absorption level study yeah. showed that a sickle like. depends on how fat you are. It depends on what your metabolic rates are. How yeah, much they, you, suck. You, can, you can add, there, there are averages. I mean, of course, of, of the averaging of the, the sample study, the, the participants of the study of Dr. Farsalinos' plasma nicotine absorption level study, they came out with numbers and they measured, you know, they had a bunch of people that came in after eight hours of abstinence. They took a blood, they had them use a sigalike with 18 milligram uh, juice in it for five minutes and 10 puffs to emulate a cigarette. The second blood draw was taken and then they continued to use the device at will for an hour with bloods being drawn every 15 minutes. And then it was repeated on an alternate day, again, after eight hours of absence, with a, an EVIC at nine watts with the same liquid in it. Is, is, that the, is that the kind of regulation that we're going to want to deal with? I mean, we're, Well, it's information. They're going to be concerned with how much nicotine. They're going to be – what's considered I, dosing, which I, is why I, that study was so important to I, show I, that what's on the bottle is not what's getting into the I agree. Bottle. I agree with Lou. This, this is – yeah, this, this, definitely, this is definitely going to be a big concern, I think, the, the dosage. Um, and uh, which, again, the latest study that Dr. F did with, with the consistency and the efficiency of nicotine delivery to the user will be a good one. And flavorings, I think that's going to be a huge problem. So let me just re- redirect a little bit here on that question, uh, Lou. Uh, you have mingled with some of these big tobacco giants many times in these conferences. You know how they operate. Does it surprise you that a week before this deeming rule is dropped that views uh, the RGR product releases flavors and uh-huh. as I spoke about it last week uh, on the previous show the way that the flavors are worded the way that the flavors are presented and marketed and advertised uh, is that a shock to you or is that something that we can take and look at and say hmm maybe they know something that we don't um, I would I would be more I, I don't want to say one way or the other but I would be inclined to think that that it's awfully convenient that they came out with a certain product at a certain time and a certain description. I mean, it's just a little too convenient, kind of like the group of health organizations that got to meet with OMB in such close proximity to the date that the FDA was released mm-hmm. to to OMB. So, you know, where it leaked, how it leaked, the timing of things, you know, it's awful, awful lot of coincidences that we're seeing in, in this timing. Yeah. 
structure with things that are happening relative to this date. So I, I'm I, I'm sorry in this case. I don't believe my gut tells me that, that it's not so coincidental. Yeah, um, yeah. But I I don't have any information by which to say anything more than that. Just that sure. my gut tells me it's not coincidental. Sure, just, just, my, and, and my gut, as a, as an e-liquid manufacturer from the craft wing of, of the industry, I actually find it somewhat um, appeasing. Maybe. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I would be. I would 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 advise great caution yeah. with interpreting anything in this arena. And we've got a we've got an arena where there's so many different dynamics. Um, Citizens United do not underestimate Citizens United and it's and the levels at which it can be a you know it can be impactful. Uh-huh. That's so, you know I mean I, I, I we just don't know there are too many things in here we just don't know. Uh, back to the OIRA just just briefly before I let you go Lou and I certainly appreciate you I know you're traveling and I certainly appreciate you taking time to to kind of uh, I think I think most importantly is to understand this process here. Of, of the of the deeming rule that that has gone into to OMB and in the previous uh, session that you sat down with him I know you can't say a lot of stuff uh, but what what was general what, what did you present to them as far as the open vapor industry oh I can be extremely specific well, because we don't have to get too we, specific. We, used, we used well no I'm not going to because I don't have the document in front of me and it was a year and a half ago so I, I don't re- remember all the details but the the details are on our website they're posted the document that we gave them the the meeting that we had was a summarized version of the topics that are covered in that document and some of them we focused on even more like the the economic factors that we knew would be of particular interest this this but, is the same document that that we saw a year ago right yeah, if you just go to the AIMSA website go yeah. under go into resources and it says you know all of the documents that we submit with the government are there so those are our public public comments and testimony section, and you go in there, and you, it's 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 probably at the bottom of the page. It's probably the first one, and it say Ames's handout to OMB. Excellent. That's Thanks. that that's that's basically the information that we pre- that we handed them. So it is a it is now a public document because we gave it to them, um, not because it was an official capacity like a public comment, but when you give the government a document, it becomes public record. One thing, one, uh-huh. the reason why I asked that question is one thing that, through my experience with the FDA, was as you said, they don't ask a lot of questions. You're there to present. But what I did notice sitting there across this group of people is when you said something that would pique their interest, and you can, you know, you can automatically tell that, oh, you know, this is something that they're interested in, right? Uh, simply by the way that they react, how they pay attention to you, if they do ask a specific question on what you just said. So can you think back then and see and, and kind of kind of guess what was one of the things that that piqued their interest that they probably wanted to learn more about? Well, um, I think they were interested in the economics that we laid, laid out. And we said we're a small organization. We only have this many members and the numbers that contributed that, that volunteered and shared the, the information was only 50 percent of our membership. It just coincidentally worked out that it was a representative 50 percent. What I mean by that is we have larger members that have a lot of employees, maybe just hypothetically say 100 employees. We have smaller members that have maybe two employees and and various stages in between. So the 50 percent that submitted just happened to really be represent about 50 percent of the market impact mm-hmm. of our of our overall membership. So we were able to draw certain correlations and we said, well, this is what we see from 50 percent of our members. And it is 
a true representation of the spectrum of our membership so you can double those numbers mm-hmm. you know within a, a very good within as a reasonable assumption of the impact of just our members and that's only 25 or whatever the number was at the time yeah. you know that's that's how many we are and there are this many more around the country of varying sizes mm-hmm. so that was certainly of interest to them and <clears throat> the same thing you saw me do when when uh, Dimitri when you when you went with me to to another meeting and I, I pulled out my vape case and whipped out the Darwins and the different yeah. devices with the electronics and the safety features, it had the same impact. I did the same thing and it had the same impact. It was a surprise to them. They didn't know about advanced devices. They didn't know about all the safety features that were part of the advanced devices. So, I, again, that's I not really their, that day when we were there. It's not really their wheelhouse, but you asked me what they showed excitement about. Yeah. That was something that they took a very strong interest no, in. No, I think it's extremely important for those because those are two key points. Hey, listen, the devices that we use are not the what RJR brought to you earlier, the two stick batteries. It's extremely important for them to understand that there's you know uh, thousands, if not millions, of, of people that are using these devices and how they're getting their nicotine as well and how the vaporization is happening. And, and it's something that they don't understand simply because the scope of our industry is just so uh, – the innovation in the last three or four years, just, uh, just I can't keep up with it. <laughs> Can you imagine other people are trying to regulate us? So I think it's extremely important, obviously. But, it, it, again, from the financial standpoint, can you imagine if we did have a more organized – it doesn't have to be AIMS or whatever it is, whatever association it is – you know, uh, an organization that can present 200 manufacturers that each employ 50 to 100 people to show up there and what kind of impact they would have with the OMB. I mean, it could not hurt us at all, right? That's what. That's why I think it's important right now, particularly important. If I were going to put out a call to action today, which you've never seen me do and I don't do, but if I were to put out a call to action today, my call to action would be to every single organized entity, whether it's a state entity, whether it's a partial state entity, whether it's SFADA, AIMSA, anybody, everybody, get economic numbers. I agree wholeheartedly. And, and get these meetings with OMB and show them what as much as you can ju- as much as you can verify and just say, look, this is a partial list, but this is the list that we can give you. And Those are the here, numbers here, we can give them. Period. We give, we give them the best that we can. We make it as verifiable as we can. We ask people to be as accurate as they can. It's going to be tough because members don't want to reveal their sales data. But if we can show year-over-year growth in sales dollars, year-over-year growth in employment positions, year-over-year growth in the number of stores in the state, maybe there's a state-level registry that actually records what you know stores by, by category. So there may be in each state, there may be somewhere a listing for vape stores or, or, or business retail operations that are categorized as vape stores. Year over year, smokers who have switched, God forbid. Whatever numbers, whatever economic numbers that we can get, as long as they're, the main thing is they have to be verifiable. You can't go in there with numbers that, that they can't prove. They can't go verify. They need to be able to double check it and find some way for them to be able to say, you know, we, these are the numbers, these are the, these are the members, these are the representatives, this is what they do. You know, you're making a public document, a public statement. You don't want to go in there and, and just embellish. You got to go in there with as many facts as you can. But if organizations like Gamesa didn't said these are our numbers, this is how many members contributed, and be honest about whether or not it's a true representation. Like in Ames's case, it was 50%, and it was a true representation of the spectrum of our members. So it's reasonable to 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 double those numbers for the financial impacts of the Ames membership at that time. 
um, you know, and the numbers should be much, much greater now. But, you know, I would look at at all those things, try to get as much information you can on export product because that's an economic impact. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this is at least the part that we can do. The problem with our industry is we don't do what we can do. We become very reactive in our in our advocacy. We wait until there's a threat. Oh, there's a new proposed bill in New Mexico. Call to action. Let's get a new chapter. Let's get a lobbyist. You know, that's reacting to an immediate threat. When uh, Dimitri and a bunch of other e-liquid manufacturers met with with Mitch Zeller, he came out with a threat. Mitch made a very clear statement about labeling. They came out of that meeting and they said, hey, wake up. And you know, here's a reality. The FDA is very concerned about these labelings. Call to action, and we see you know a market improvement. Uh, we still see the bozos out there doing crazy <laughs> stuff, but you know for the yeah, most part, the industry really bad. did step up and start paying attention, sure. and a lot of people sure. started changing their labels. Uh, the last thing that we can do is panic, which is something that we do a lot in this industry, and it's definitely not the end of all yet. Uh, timetable, just in your estimation, again, uh, uh, Lou, from here on to get to step nine. I'm guessing that the final rule will probably drop within 90 days. I'm guessing probably by the end of the year. I mean, that's just a guess. I have no nothing to substantiate that on. I just know they're under so much political pressure to do something and right. get the process rolling. I mean, it was like the NPRM. It came out with very little detail. It looked like it had all kinds of potential. But when you looked at it more closely, you realize that there was this giant sledgehammer at the end of it. And if it didn't, if the final rule doesn't look substantially different than that, you know, then we're, we got a much bigger litigation fight in front of us. We just don't know. But I, I'm guessing we'll see something probably by the end of the year, certainly within 90 days. I'd be very surprised if it goes beyond that. The average. Do you, do you, think, do you think that, um, given that, do you think that a new administration within the next two years would make a difference? Is there a chance for that to happen? It's too again. It's too difficult to say. A lot of. I mean, ultimately, Congress is really where where we hope to see action. I mean, having Congress write a new piece, a new act that created a new category for the FDA to to regulate under, with it had different parameters. Right now, we're stuck with the Tobacco Control Act because there's no other regulatory act or category under which these products fit, and the only reason they fit is because anything derived from. So, um, you know, I heard Dimitri say earlier, you know, this issue of the zero nicotine, it's going to face legal challenge. If, if the, the redeeming rule comes out and they try to regulate zero nicotine the same as nicotine, it's going to have to face that legal challenge because there's nothing derived from. Yep. Right. Just like with the accessories, you know, they sit there and say, well, we're going to, you know, regulate the accessories of the device's accessories. Well, are, is a cigarette lighter regulated as a tobacco product? Yeah. Right. It's, 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 called a, it's called a cigarette lighter. Yeah, it's a drip tip regulated as a vapor device well but they may maybe yes and maybe no it depends on the legal interpretation if you if you go down the pathway and say zero nicotine is not has nothing derived from and if it wins that battle then these devices can be used for zero nicotine so how can you say that their only use is for nicotine therefore they are a nicotine product i mean a humidor has one function and one function only a cigar a cigar chopper you know clipper that's specifically for cigars is clearly for cigars. It has no other function, mm-hmm. but matches don't get regulated as tobacco products because you can light a candle or you can light a, you know, a fire in your fireplace or a stove or whatever. And we certainly fact, can do that with our devices. It's definitely going to be challenged. There's no doubt about it. So, I mean, again, everything comes down to, to really what comes out and, you know, hopefully we, we, the organizations are working with, with attorneys and, and trying to prepare and pay attention to what's going on and, you know, I would pay, pay very close attention to, to counsel and the different different counsels, see what they say and compare it, talk to your other counsels. But, 
you know, I mean, they, the, the whole idea behind AIMSA when we launched was, you know, let's start getting ready. And, you know, even though we never got a large membership, I think that the industry did kind of wake up because we saw a lot of people all of a sudden starting to focus on quality of ingredients, quality of nicotine. Look at how many people, once the DA and AP issue came out, look at how many people having nothing to do with AIMSA, plenty of people came out and started, you know, started changing their business model. So, um, you know, I, I think this is that those that are prepared for it are in a better shape than those that are not prepared for it. But we know that there are plenty of operators out there that don't belong there and they need to be weeded out. The question is how do we end up, you know, kind of pushing for, for a rule that will be effective in getting rid of the people that don't belong involved in this and those that are doing it the right way have an opportunity to step up to the plate. Yeah. Lou, always uh, an encyclopedia of information. Uh, thank you for taking your time out of your trip and coming on here and uh, giving us the OIRA experience. I'm not looking forward to it. Uh, Unfortunately, it wasn't very definitive. But, but uh, listen, no, nothing is definitive. And I think that's a, that's a great uh, way to end this segment is to listen. We just don't know yet. There's many unknowns. Every advocate and every person that I've talked to so far has said the same thing. We just don't know yet. But uh, we can take the steps that are necessary at this stage of the game. Well, thanks for having me, and um, to everybody out there, you know, to, I, I would say don't panic. Yep. You know, try to try to remember to breathe in and out every day, all day, and um, do what you can to to try to organize and get economic data to to OMBOI for now. And um, other than that, we can pretty much have to wait and see what happens. There he goes, everybody. Uh, President Emeritus, did I say that right? Of Amy. Yeah, uh, Emeritus. Emeritus. Yeah. That was close. <laughs> Sorry, I'm from Greece. Oh, one, I want to throw ninety one more plug. seconds. Can I can I two, sure. two more minutes, Dimitri? Sure, sure, sure. So this is something that I hope everybody will spread far and wide. Um, as as Dimitri knows, he's been to the TMA conferences that, and and I get invited to speak at those. I've also been invited the last two years to speak at the Global Forum on Nicotine in Warsaw, Poland. And the industry, for the most part, doesn't get to see these conferences and doesn't get to see the material. But what's so important about them is that these are non-industry experts. Let me say that word again: non-industry experts. There's no industry commentary going on within these these non-industry experts. So, for example, at GFN, the keynote speaker was Dr. D uh, Derek Yatch, who was formerly a director from the World Health Organization, and he was integrally involved in tobacco controls, as are a variety of these other people. I got permission to repost that information on the ERF website. Maybe someone can grab a, a, a link to the e-research e foundation, e-researchfoundation.org, and you go, there's a tab there called Direct from the Experts, and underneath there, there's a really good list of studies. We have got some new ones to update and add onto it, and there's a page for GFN and TMA year over year, 2014 and 2015. And these are the experts. This is direct from the experts. This is non-industry stuff. And you go in there and you can see the topic for every every presentation, Ten the seconds. person who's, who's doing the, the, the giving the presentation and their full bio. And then you can click watch the video and it pops up right there. It doesn't redirect you. So you've got panel discussions. There are medical experts. There are policy experts. This is valuable, valuable information. And one of the problems that we've had is breaching the great wall of the mainstream media. If we can get a far enough wide circulation of these page links, and it doesn't benefit us in any way, shape, or form, this is just usable information, why it's there, just like the public comments under the AIMSA site and the AIMSA standards. They're there for the industry. Please use them. By all means, use them for advocacy. But circulating those page links direct from the experts, 
Uh, those could be circulated to consumers, suppliers, supply chain, regulators at every level, city, state, federal, antis, lobbyists, anybody and everybody can be, you can send out those links and use those links because it's non-industry experts, no industry commentary. I implore you, go look at it, check it out. It's well done, it's clean, it's professional, it's done right, and it's in very usable form. I really encourage everybody to go circulate those links. It can only help. Thank you, Lou. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. And I will see you uh, Wednesday in Washington, uh, in Williamsburg, I guess. That's correct. Uh, No, Leesburg. Leesburg, Leesburg, yes, that is correct. I'll see you there, my friend. Have a good evening. Good night. Thanks. There goes, everybody. Lou Ritter. Uh, Are you... (laughs) Uh, Jay, do you feel better or worse now since we started? Since we started? Oh, holy fuck. Are you serious? The mattress, Agrifo, wow. I don't know That's what good. to think after that. Uh, man, what are they? nothing to think. They're, we just have to take the necessary steps as it was progressing, and uh, we knew it was coming. Uh, well, I don't know. You, you and I know that. Right. You and I know that. Right. The, the problem is that the the general public and more specifically the public uh who actually own a stake in this industry are going to be scared shitless there are people that are manufacturing e-liquid that don't know nothing about this no uh but it's true no it's absolutely true but the problem is is that the people who have understood that still understand that and the people who don't understand that are going to continue to do whatever the fuck they're doing. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for filling in for Meg today. I certainly appreciate your time. Hingham Hill. Well, I, I didn't wear my uh, my crew nap tonight. <laughs> but, uh, and you kept Stanley pretty under control. So uh, <laughs> yes. uh, say hi to your lovely wife and to your family. And uh, I hope to see you soon, buddy. Should be heading up there sometime around Christmas. I hope so. I hope so. All right. Uh oh. Did I lose you? No, I'm here. All right. Have a good night, Jay. I appreciate it. Good night, D. There he goes. Up stomp from Hinham Hill. Hinham Hill. I love saying that. Uh, all right. Finally, uh, just a little rant on this uh, on on these uh, these events. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Here's a special report for event organizers. You do not. I repeat, you do not have to host advocacy sessions at your events. Nobody's going to criticize you if you don't. Vapors are not going to stop coming. Vendors are not going to stop coming if you do not host advocacy sessions. At this stage of the game, it is extremely difficult to host any kind of advocacy session at a large expo for various reasons. What we should be focusing on now is getting smokers to switch to vaping to increase our numbers, to increase our voice. That's not happening at these expos. We're not inviting smokers in. Our goal is to eliminate combustible tobacco. That is not happening at these expos. But don't feel that you have to have an advocacy session so you won't be criticized. So don't feel that you have to have an advocacy session to legitimize your event. There's nothing wrong with having an event with that advocacy session. But please don't use the advocacy session to dress up the party that you're throwing. Because that's what these have turned into. People are so busy. They go around these booths. They hang out with the chicks. They have the cloud competitions. As soon as one of these booths gets up on the table with a bag of juice, they all flock. 
It's extremely difficult to even get the message across when you have these advocates like Greg Connolly and the Vaping Militia trying to overpower the DJs to get a word out to what? A few people? But there's, not, there's no need for you to have an advocacy session. It really isn't. Don't feel that you have to have that in there because of what one person is going to say or what the public is going to say. Trust me. Free shit gets everybody out. <laughs> You're not going to have any problem getting your event to attend. What I'd like to see is specific events that are geared towards advocacy where vendors can attend and not only learn about state and federal law, but also be educated on the product, be educated on what insurance to carry, be educated what product to carry, be educated on buying and selling, connections in China, connections with manufacturers here. There's so much more to this industry except advocacy. I like to blow a cloud every now and again. I like women in bikinis or lack of, maybe duct tape. <laughs> And there's nothing wrong with having it in this events, but don't try to use advocacy to cover it up. There's nothing wrong with it. Have a good time and party. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Smoke Free Radio. I will not be back next week. I will be attending a conference uh, at the TMA. Hopefully, I will be back in two weeks right here Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern. Please follow all the shows on VP Live Network. Sundays, Kevin with VP Live Radio. Monday, Anti Nanny with Raven Grimm, very boring and genie. Tuesdays usually Russ from Clickbang. By the way, uh, Russ is dealing with a death in his family, and uh, you know I'm thinking of you, brother. Uh, you can say what you want about Russ, but I'm his friend, and like all my friends, he always I will always have your back. Wednesday night, uh, Smoke Free Radio right here, 9 p.m. Eastern, and Thursdays, 9 p.m. Eastern, the lovely Genie K with a Genie K show. Have a wonderful evening. I'll see you in two weeks.